Hello and welcome to the Cinephile New Wave. I'm Duran. I'm Boris. And today Boris picked Akira Kurosawa's Ron. Um, an amazing, amazing movie that I'm embarrassed to have not seen at this point. I've been trying to see this movie since I think I was 14 when I first got shown a clip of it in class. Um, but a quick summary of the movie. So um, it's a loose adaptation of... Shakespeare's King Lear, but set in um, uh, medieval Japan, um, probably like close to the end of medieval Japan. And um, basically it's about this uh, lord, um, this older lord who has three sons, and he decides to give um, his lands to his three sons, making his firstborn son the new lord. But um, chaos ensues, as is the name Ron in Japanese. Um, the the sons kind of try to vie, vie for power and um, things don't don't end so well. Uh, would you like to give <laughs> yeah. some of the context? <laughs> I would. I would love to. I would love to give some of the context. So um, for people don't, who don't know, um, Akira Kurosawa was basically the face of Japanese cinema uh, for a long time. Um, especially after he, uh, after Rush Shimon came out in 1950 and became this massive international success. Um, he continued to be a very prolific director through the 1950s. And a lot of these films, um, kind of underneath the context of post, uh, post-World War II Japan were, were films about an optimistic future and trying to, uh, um, at least in some sense, uh, rebuild the, the image of Japan. Um, and so during this time, he created some of his masterpieces, you know, of course, Rashomon, uh, Ikiro, uh, Seven Samurai, as I'm sure many people know. Uh, but he became, he, uh, his, his filmography became a lot less prolific going into the 60s. Um, uh, his famous collaboration with Toshiro Mifune kind of ended with 1965's Redbeard. Um, which was a grueling two-year shoot, and some kind of unclear uh, disagreements between between those two ended their relationship forever. I've heard and that, that kind uh, of a... like they had some like was it? I think he uh, Kurosawa made him like keep a beard throughout like the, the entire shoot, um, which mm-hmm. like uh, went against what he had to do for like some other movies, and so like they they had like a yeah. So around that. basically, basically. Uh, it's it's i just want to say it's very unclear why they yeah. <laughs> decided to like never make a film together after that um but yeah this was this was the idea that uh during the two year shoot um uh Mifune had to have a beard for the film and so this this basically didn't let him do other projects uh it's like the henry cavill mustache from um from batman versus superman he had the what the Henry Cavill mustache from oh, Batman vs. Superman. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, you <laughs> couldn't CGI the beard. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit outside of the grasp. Um, yeah, after 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 Redbeard came out, uh, uh, Kurosawa didn't he didn't film anything for five years when he released a film called uh, uh, Dodes Kaden, um, which I'm butchering. But this was a film that was just a total box office failure, and it kind of cemented his like irrelevance in modern Japanese cinema. And, and at the time, if you talk, if you look, if you talk to a lot of uh, like contemporary Japanese directors, they all kind of hated Kurosawa. Uh, Nikisa Oshima, who would go on to direct uh, In the Realm of the Senses. 
famously said famously literally said explicitly said how much he hated kurosawa um <laughs> yeah i think yeah, that, that yeah. was mostly because um he was kind of viewed as like western right because like a lot of his movies um copied a lot of um styles from like american cinema and of course like he's known for his um shakespeare adaptations of course and like adaptations of russian literature like uh Dostoevsky's the idiot I mean, perhaps this Westernization narrative has been, yeah, this Westernization narrative has been plaguing Kurosawa for a while. Although Kurosawa mm -hmm. was like vehemently disagree with this, he says like, "Oh, I'm actually the most Japanese uh, <laughs> director." Um, you know, the the reason the the West the Westernization narrative comes up a lot is because of how similar some of his older films are to uh, like classic westerns. He explicitly right. talks about John Ford and Howard Hawks' influence. I think he even said himself that John Ford, he's like a, he's like a. He's like pathetic compared to like the greatness of like the cinema of John Ford. So uh, it's it, it's certainly an influence in his films, and you yeah. can clearly see that. I mean, um, the one thing I'll say about that is that it's 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 a it's a little bit difficult to like uh, immediately translate these films to like westerns. Like uh, a lot of people are under the, are, are under the misconception that you can just uh, all these like samurai flicks that Kurosawa did. Um, there can be just immediately trend. Uh, you can immediately translate them. It's like a, a, an American Western setting, and mm -hmm. it, it would work. And I mean, I guess the, the big example of this is Seven Samurai, uh, and the Magnificent Seven, and of course Fistful of Dollars and um, uh, Yojimbo, right. which are basically the same film. Yojimbo <laughs> um, was much better, though. <laughs> yeah, and so the reason these, these the the reason the uh, the Japanese films are much better are not only just because they're original and directed by Kurosawa, who of course is you know a genius, um, but because they they adhere to some very specific like Japanese um, principles. And this is this um, idea of like the samurai. Um, it, it, he's part of a very like rigid social structure, and there's a mm -hmm. and when you know Yojimbo walks into this town of like you know. Um, Peasants, essentially, there's that there's that immediate class difference. Whereas, if you see that in like a Western, a Western, um, the the dream of a, of the Western is that you you go out to the West where there's no laws and essentially you can escape all this like class difference. You can escape all this like rigid uh, social structure. But this isn't something that is explored in these uh, samurai flicks. Yeah, like the cultural you know, context is completely different between between the two. Yeah, um, I think that like a lot of people yeah have like the misconception that like either westerns came first or like yeah. samurai films came first but the reality is um there's a very complicated reciprocal relationship between the two especially in mm -hmm. like kurosawa's work as, as you mentioned like um of course like he was inspired by john ford and then from there he made like samurai movies but then afterwards um he basically more or less invented an entire genre of westerns a spaghetti western because um a fistful of dollars was based off of yojimbo <laughs> so it was so bad yeah, it was it was so bad at well indirectly, but it it was so bad how much Fistful of do Dollars ripped off Yojimbo that actually the company um, that owned the rights for Yojimbo successfully sued the company that made um, Fistful of Dollars, yeah. um, and I think that now Kurosawa has like a writing credit for um, Fistful of Dollars, even though like he had absolutely nothing to do with that movie technically. Well, there you go. <laughs> Although I'd say about Sergio Leone is is very. Um... You know, is a very good director in his own right. Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, Once Upon a Time in the West is such like a, such yeah. a great film. That's that, that's one of my favorite uh, movies of all time for sure. Yeah. I mean, like um, even even like when ripping off Kurosawa, like Leone is really good. Yeah, yeah. And the, the other one, the other difference I wanted to mention 
uh, about Samurai Flicks is that they, they, they always adhere to like a very strict honor code. Mm-hmm. And this is something you see a lot in Japanese cinema, even outside of the samurai genre. Um, but adherence to the uh, samurai code, and often uh, the fact if, if you have samurai who don't adhere to this, uh, this, this kind of like, I guess it's called the Giri code, um, it's almost like a subversion in a way. That's like part of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess this context is why it's often difficult to like. Uh, you know, it, it, it really like besides like the most like superficial elements of like you know one uses swords and one uses guns. Um, I think I think I think it's not exactly like a like you said it's like a, a complicated reciprocal relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. This Westernization narrative has been like really um, plaguing um, Kurosawa. Uh, but. Yeah, of course, also, the westernization was a big worry for Japan, because um, after, like, 1945, um, in Japan, like, much like other countries, there was this, there was this push towards modernization. And so, uh, for Japan, for some Japanese people, like, modernization was synonymous with, like, westernization. Um, and so, you know, they didn't want to be like the West, right? Mm-hmm. And so this was a this was like a big um, crisis of identity. Yeah, and like even like culturally, uh, they want to like develop their own unique cinema. I mean, um, mm-hmm. exactly. Like Ozu, so, as you said, like Oshima, um, even like Kobayashi. I think they all like at some point like railed against Kurosawa. Yeah, um, you just say Ozu there. Um, I, I believe <laughs> I, I remember reading something. This might have been a, a while ago. Um, yeah, or or, or, or sorry, maybe maybe I'm misremembering. I think that. So I think that uh, contemporary Japanese critics praised Ozu and then put down Kurosawa in like comparison. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. but certainly I'll take Ozu... it back. I don't think I don't think Ozu maybe said anything okay. specifically. Yeah, but... Ozu, Ozu, um, Ozu Kurosawa and Mizuguchi were like were part of this like very like first wave of like uh, contemporary Japanese cinema. Yeah, uh, coming out of the post war uh, post World War Two, um, and so. Ozu and Mizuguchi died pretty early, and Kurosawa kept on making films, and so kind of uh, he, he was immediately became like a target for a lot of these like contemporary, especially out of the Japanese new wave, uh, mm-hmm. which Oshima came out of. Yeah, um, became this target, and so the problem, the reason that you know these these kind of like uh, these these movements from cinema just came in such quick succession is because this kind of like this like desperate need to find identity. And so what Kurosawa's definition of the identity of, of his like, of, you know, Japanese identity, which is still very rooted in like the traditional, you know, very like samurai-esque, uh, um, was very different from what Oshima uh, thought, who was, you know, very much more explicitly political and much more explicitly leftist about his films. Yeah. Um, and so this, uh, this is kind of where that kind of uh, distance came from. Um, and so this also kind of fuels um, Kurosawa's frustration um, with cinema with his films, right? And so after his nineteen seventy film flopped, um, he actually tried to uh, commit suicide in nineteen seventy one. Um, but you know, luckily he survived. And uh, his next film, which he filmed in nineteen seventy five, Dersh Rosala, um, he could only film it with uh, like Soviet backing. He filmed it in Russia as well. Um, and kind of every subsequent film after that, he uh, needed to get like um, foreign investment in. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, with Kagamusha and Ron, you know, famously Steven Spielberg and George Lucas stepped in, um, who were the, such big inspirations, you know? Of course, yeah. like Star Wars is largely based on Hidden Fortress. 
Um, and uh, doesn't so, like uh, Scorsese cameo in um, Dreams too? Yes, yeah, a little bit more than a cameo, but yes, mm. yeah, Scorsese has a role in Dream. Actually, uh, yeah, I watched Dreams recently. It was very odd to see Scorsese <laughs> speaking um, because he plays uh, he plays. Um, Did he try to speak Japanese or uh, no, 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 no? He plays he plays Vincent Van Gogh. Okay, and. Um, in the context of the film, he's like the, the the main character who's just like called I in the credits. I don't know what his actual name is. Hmm. Um, maybe it's just like a um, a, a stand-in for Kurosawa. But, you know, that, that, that's that's your inter- that's some that could be someone's interpretation. Mm-hmm. But he literally gets transported into a Van Gogh painting and goes to talk to him, <laughs> and uh, Scorsese just responds to him in English, and he sounds just so much like Scorsese that it's almost like hard to like <laughs> believe him as like a Vincent Van Gogh, you know? That's really funny. Um, that kind of reminds me of how in um, The Last Temptation of Christ, like everyone has like this really big like uh, Bronx, New York accent, and like we're supposed <laughs> to like believe that they, these guys are like around in Jerusalem, around like year zero. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, so anyway, what was I talking about? Oh, so yeah, so this was... So this kind of like, um, you know, first of all, uh, Kurosawa became a lot less prolific. And second of all, he became a lot more frustrated with the, the state of Japanese cinema that he was like trying to comment on. And so this kind of turned into like a lot more uh, nihilistic, a lot more pessimistic. And I think in, especially in Iran, a lot more like hellish landscapes that he was creating. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's some, some great work he did there. <laughs> Um, I think I think hellish is a, is a great word to use, just based off of um, like the visuals throughout the movie. Um, this like constant, there's always like this like fog, you know. There's like several shots of like nothing but fog and like um, so much fog that like the rest of like the frame is obscured. Um, and like uh, the the battle scenes too, especially the battle scene in like midway through the movie um, where they. Um, try to capture the third castle just pure pure hell smoke fire it just it's absolutely insane like the, the fact that he was able to get the money for this movie in the first place just is amazing because um at the time apparently it was the um the most expensive uh japanese movie ever made um which for someone yeah. who like you know 15 years earlier basically like didn't have a career it's uh it's really something yeah, I mean, he did have a career, maybe <laughs> a little bit of exaggeration, but well, if he killed himself, um, then he wouldn't have had a career. Yeah, but certainly, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the, the path of Kurosawa, Kurosawa was. Uh, oh, okay, that's what you meant. I thought, okay, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Certainly, Kurosawa was kind of deemed unbankable by a lot of the producers, and so yeah, this kind of played into that frustration. Um, and of course, Kurosawa like insisted on making these like like massively budgeted films, whereas like most. Most uh, most Japanese films at the time were largely going into like um, like uh, well much lower budget and much more like kind of accessible constraints. Um, yeah, if you read about pink films, if you know what those are, um, no, what are those? I, so <laughs> okay, so pink films are essentially uh, it, it's a very like loose term for uh, like um, you know films Japanese films specifically with a lot of you know nudity and sexual themes mm-hmm. um it's it, essentially it's 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 basically glorified pornography <laughs> but, like softcore stuff um yeah softcore stuff it's still adhered to like some like rigid like japanese restrictions i mean if you're familiar with seijin suzuki 
um, yeah. really, he's pretty popular in the West. Huge fan. Um, a lot of his films were like this, and you know they, they often featured like a lot of nudity. And he was mm-hmm. kind of under, he was basically under studio like guideline or like studio orders to uh, to add that nudity to his films. <laughs> um, yeah, because uh, in, in this time, about like I think something about like fifty percent of Japanese films releasing in theaters were pink films, hmm. um, and so you could maybe see how this is a little bit maybe a little bit frustrating for somebody like Kurosawa who's trying yeah. to make films in this kind of environment. Um, yeah. I forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's frustrating. I mean, for sure. I mean, it, it makes sense that like, he had a, such a, uh, career slump in like the, the early seventies, late sixties. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was talking about how, yeah, this is how, this is how studios. Um, this is basically what studios wanted, and Kurosawa's mm-hmm. getting the opposite. So this is, of course, why he has to go to like foreign, uh, foreign investors. Yeah, um, and I mean, it's it's fortunate that like he he decided to make this movie maybe like more later in his career because um, I think around this time is when um, like international co-productions became more of a thing, um, and and like especially with like a lot of international um, art house films today uh you they're almost always co-productions it's um especially like if they're shown at like film festivals it's pretty rare that you see like a like um a a movie by an established like quote-unquote art house like auteur um that isn't in some way uh like have like foreign investment just because like the money isn't really there anymore to uh to make like these these movies in like one country um so yeah. yeah i mean it's uh it's, it's a great thing it's true yeah it became yeah it's yeah international films became like its own genre and stuff and mm-hmm. there's like there's films that are just like completely unpopular in their country of origin yeah um that are just like very well known in the west mm-hmm. um yeah uh i think yeah somebody like uh apichat pong like his movies just like no one cares about them in Thailand, but this is like one of yeah. the biggest Thai directors. Yeah, in I mean, the like, world. Well, um, honestly, like he's the only Thai director I know by name, um, and um, mm-hmm. it's because like he just is like unable to work within the system at all. Because I heard like the the Thai film industry is like very very strict, um, and it's like apparently like complete hell for directors to really get anything through. So that's why like he always like works works outside the system. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And then there's like also um, uh, Hidden Dragon, cra- wait, no, the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. Um, the, the famous Ang Lee film. And right. That was a film, that, that's a film in, extremely popular in the West and it won a bunch of awards in the Oscars um, that year. But um, for a film that has like very bankable stars, it was completely unpopular in China for a number of reasons. Hmm. Um, one of them being this like, this like um, obsession with, uh, I guess, uh, like accuracy, um, authenticity. You know, oh. um, there was a lot of the most boring of thing in cinema. Yeah, I guess. But but for the Chinese, this was completely redundant. Hmm. Um, and so this like had like a selling point. And of course, maybe another big one is the fact that you know the Michelle Yeoh and um, uh, Chow Yun Fat were uh, Cantonese actors. They were from Hong Kong. 
Right. So they're asked to play like with Mandarin, you know, they're asked to speak Mandarin. They have this really thick accent when they're <laughs> speaking with them, which becomes almost like a very like disassociating for like the Chinese audience. But it's yeah, completely like the American audience not is gonna not going to notice that like whatsoever. Yeah. So yeah. so it, it almost feels as if it was a film made for Americans in a way. I feel like a lot that, of like you know, um, like Ang Lee films are like that. Um, yeah. At least well, well, especially like now that he's like mostly working in America. Uh. Maybe I don't know if I'd extend that to all his films. I watched Eastern Man Woman recently, and oh, I feel yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. very much commenting on like not all of these cultural shifts. I, I meant um his films more recently, the last like ten fifteen years or so. But yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Um, that movie is great. I, I think the movie is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe we should talk about the. Oh yeah, we uh, watched Ron for today's podcast. I spent <laughs> three Ron. hours watching this fucking movie. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um. All right, since you watched this really recently, just, like, mm-hmm. what are your, like, immediate thoughts about this movie? You seem to really love it from what I see. Um, I guess I'll, I'll run down the list. So, I mean, I guess we, we can we can start with um, Tetsuya Nakadai. How do you pronounce his name? Mm-hmm. The, the main Don't character? Don't ask me, man. Okay. Tetsuya Nakadai. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Um, what, a, what, a, what a performance, man. It's so good. He's one of, one of the greatest actors of all time in my eyes um yeah i, I absolutely like love him in, in the human condition and like he was he was fantastic in this um and i think that his performance is really elevated by um how sick like the costumes are and also the makeup um i think that this film like his his makeup in this film is some of the best i've seen like in a movie just ever because it's um oh yeah it's 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 not like trying to be accurate at all it's not I don't think it's like trying to be realistic but um it, it's very very like stylized and they use a lot of like um uh, like mascara or something like that like to kind of like darken the lines around his face and it really makes him like look like um like a character from a like a Japanese like an old Japanese painting yeah I would say it's, it it feels like it feels like uh, very theatrical almost yeah like it's not. Yeah, it's yeah. For like a theater look, you know. And that kind of like the theatricality, I think, extends for like most of the film too, which is definitely not something I'm used to with Kurosawa as like someone who's. Um, I, I've always thought of like Kurosawa as like someone who's like very, like deeply cinematic, kind of like almost to a point where he's like detached from from theater. And so he's, he's like kind of like forming his. That's own a cinema. that's a that's a very interesting perspective, and I think this actually comes from the kind of shifts that. Kurosawa self experience in film and his reaction to that. Yeah, um, certainly his films in the fifties were a lot more, um, um, a lot more like humanistic and a lot more individualistic. And there were often mm-hmm. like you know, you know, we have like Toshiro Mifune. It's like the reason this is such like an iconic role is because of how how much he like <laughs> focused the camera on Mifune's character. And yeah, and like he became m- the centerpiece of these films. And but m- this, m- I don't m- think Mifune's this acting this, is this, also like very like um, I feel like naturalistic. Um, and this is like, it's completely like cinematic acting, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> it's like kind of a weird like comparison, but I, I kind of like, he reminds me a lot of like Brando or like, um, people from like John Cassavetes movies and that like, he's, mm. he's such like a, like a, like a character and, and like a, but a very like cinematic kind of acting style. It's like, it's completely divorced from theater. Hmm. Maybe. Hmm. I don't know. But Yeah. Mifuni certainly is a lot different from Tatsuya Nakadai. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll mention that um, it was brought up to him, um, like um, I I don't remember who uh, 
who said this, but um, the 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 prospect of actually casting Mifuni for uh, Tatsuya Nakadai's role, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Kurosawa essentially said like anybody who acts in a shogun is not a, is never gonna <laughs> play in my films. And Shogun was a TV series in the eighties so where um, a white guy went to Japan and. Uh, I'm not actually sure what the series is about, but it's certainly it's certainly a product of this like of how studios have become less uh, more low budget and more like uh, you know consumer friendly essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I am very happy though. Okay, I'm not happy that their relationship was ruined, Kurosawa and Mifune's relationship, but I'm very happy that um, Nakata Nakata. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm very happy he played yeah. the role because um, yeah. He was he was just perfect. This the um the theatricality of his acting throughout. Um, I think it re- really reinforces um how theatrical like the entire movie is. Um, I was reading somewhere that um Kurosawa said that um as he's gotten older, he's like he likes to let the camera um still without cutting for for like far longer. And I think that's like it's very much like a like a theatrical style. Um, there's a lot of like um like a uh, tripod still like long takes in this movie um that kind of reminded me of um uh, again a weird comparison but like Dreyer with like or dead yeah um and, like Dreyer is of course like a very very theatrical filmmaker um and uh yeah i think just overall the theatricality of this movie the um the scope of it the colors it just it's it's all like overwhelming um, and I think the, the, which I think makes the, the ending of it, especially surprising, um, since I, I definitely like was not expecting such like a dark ending. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that it, it would end somewhere like on the, on the lighter side. Although, um, if we're talking about theater, um, and of course this is an ad- ad- adaptation of King Lear, which is a tragedy, it, it would make sense that this movie would have like kind of a, a sad ending. Yeah, I would say in context of like the progression of his career, having a, a sad ending isn't super surprising, especially if you yeah. watch Kagamusha. Um, yeah, and I mean, and Kagamusha is, is is specifically about a um, like a it, it's about a specific moment in history, and, and you know if you're aware of the historical context, you know that the clan that Kagamusha focuses on is going to just get defeated by the end of the film. Like you're aware mm. of this, and so you're watching like what's happening, and it's almost all those like all those things they do all the, like about maintaining social order and um, all those like minor things that they do become almost abstracted in like the context of this, this larger failure that's going to happen. Mm. And so this is already like kind of a, a precursor to just how like pessimistic and how um, uh, like nihilistic, I guess, uh, Kurosawa views, um, uh, views this, this era and this kind of, um, or, I mean, I guess, Maybe not this area. You can also, of course, view this as a metaphor for, um, you know, his his broader views on Japan. But yeah, because um, um, like I think I've always like detected a bit of like cynicism around um, like the codes of medieval Japan and and like all of his films that take place there. Like Yojimbo is like a mm-hmm. hilarious movie because it's so like cynical about the meaningless of um, of like any of the codes. Um, but mm-hmm. like while I think like in his earlier films and like maybe his mid career. This was like mostly played for laughs, while still like being legitimate commentary. It definitely like, takes a darker turn, like in his later career. And um, this is this is actually the only like 
uh, late career Kurosawa movie I've seen besides um, Derso Uzula. But even mm-hmm. in like Derso Uzula, it's um, it's a pretty like humanistic film by the end. I know that you haven't seen it, but um, yeah, it has it has like a pretty like happy ending. Um, and it, yeah. it feels almost like a, <laughs> like an Oscar movie directed by Akira Kurosawa. Uh yeah. Sounds fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the one thing, the one thing, um, I, that was the one thing that I really noticed about the film. I think was how was these like long takes that it had, and mm-hmm. I mean, I thought it was. I mean, you're, you're talking about it being the- theatrical. I thought it was almost like it, it just felt like almost like distancing, almost. I guess like disconnected from the characters. I think there was yeah, because there's like I no close-ups can, or anything can, like in the entire yeah, movie exactly. Or, there's yeah. no close-ups, and if you can if you contrast this with his like earlier films, I mean, you know, if you, you talk about Mifune being such a such a like a visceral presence in his films, um, this is completely different. Like I don't even. Under, I don't even see how Mufuni could act in this, just because like, no. like Nakadai just has a completely, he's just almost like a fool almost to like the world around him, just can't connect. Yeah, like like, like, um, like, it's so, like it would be a completely different movie with him with him in it. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, I think that's like a, a broader commentary on. I mean, I mean, maybe this is maybe just my reading of it, but you can look at his earlier films as uh, as almost a commentary carry on the kind of like rigid social structures which i mentioned earlier um in japan these kind of like uh um these kind of samurai codes that you know or these like honor codes rather broadly that people like adhere to um and it's kind of this view it's kind of a way of diminishing the the individual and kind of placing them in a context uh you know placing the broader context right and so a lot of his early films were kind of felt more individualistic because they 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 believed that um you know there's somebody you know somebody usually mifune can like break out of this right and he can um you know create meaning um you know create their own like personal meaning uh create meaning out of their own personal aspirations right Mm. um this is almost almost a subversion of this and so a subversion of like um a lot of other japanese films at the time yeah um yeah and of course uh you know we talk a bit about like john ford inspirations and i think the biggest inspiration of that maybe inspiration from some other westerns is like uh the way uh, the way um kurosawa understands uh environments mm-hmm. um there's that famous shot from yojimbo um i know you've seen it a long time ago with it when uh, mifuni is like walking towards the the final fight and you see like all the wind just like circling around him mm-hmm. classic um yeah classic shot but this is again this is um contextualizing um, like an individual within the environment, which is what Kurosawa did really well. Um, but also Kurosawa broadly wanted to show how an individual almost like um, subverts that environment and, and is able to break out of it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's different in Iran, right? It's not, yeah, because like in, um, in, in this movie, like everyone's kind of in hell. And this it is, it is yeah, like definitely like foreshadowed, so, it's, foreshadowed, it's foreshadowed earlier on by um, the, uh, the youngest son. What was his name? Um, it's like... Sabado or something? Yeah. You you're talking about the son who who was like his friend. You know, Saburo, yeah. Only friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um and like so at the beginning of the movie I thought that like Saburo was was a like a complete dick because he's the only one that like speaks up against his father and says that um giving all the land to the to the oldest son, Tyro, is like a terrible idea and like they're just gonna be infighting. Mm-hmm. Um and the dad the dad's like uh what what about what about honor and all of this and um, the son like rightfully calls him out for being a hypocrite because like 
as we, as we learn more like through later throughout the film like um Hidetora was like a, a ruthless like a warmonger um yeah and, and he's like still kind of like paying for for his sins and i think like this whole movie is kind of about how um um it's almost like like god's like reckoning upon him in some way or or how like in a way yeah he's like he's, I, I think i think you see lady kaida who um kind of is a catalyst for like the violent events um as this mm-hmm. kind of almost like metaphor for that for the kind of the 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 karma in a way yeah um yeah because yeah. she almost seems to exist she doesn't have any like after her after her entire like lineage was destroyed she just has nothing to connect to but like this pure like vengeful destruction and that's what she goes by and of course she dies that way as well yeah the film. and like um, um but, so it seems here that like hitatora is, is trying to um find some like meaning in, in his final years um try to maybe like I don't know. Yeah. Have like try, a more optimistic try maybe like, escape. Life. Yeah. yeah, try to maybe escape that past, right? Which almost seems like a character you would see in uh, some, of course, those older films. But again, mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, when I talk about like transcending the environment, um, in a way, they do transcend the environment, don't they? And they and but the the result of that isn't like you know individual glory. It's hell. It's hell on earth, right? Mm-hmm. This whole like this massive like. Uh, you talk about this um, this third castle burning. I mean, this is like it's just total destruction caused by just powerful men, right? Yeah. And so I think this is this is the the pessimism of Akira Kurosawa like coming in, um, and it's almost you can kind of almost view it in context of like the rest of his the rest of his filmography and it's kind of growing resentment. Yeah, I, um, I mean, like um, I, I definitely want to rewatch this movie soon because it seems like. Um... Even even really before the movie starts, it seems like these men are kind of like digging their own graves. Um, it's almost yeah, like everything is is like inevitable, set in stone before like any of the um, events of the movie play out, um, and that's all like kind yeah. of like foreshadowed by um, Saburo and um, him confronting Hidatora. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Anything else we want to talk about about this film? Um, oh, I yeah. want to mention yeah. that. I want to mention that, uh, yeah, the, 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 the guy who played the jester, Peter, do you recognize him from somewhere else? No, I forgot to look, look him <laughs> he's up. From, he from? He's from Funeral Parade of Roses. He played the main character. Oh, um, shit. That's so played cool. Eddie. Oh, man, that movie is so good. Um, I love that. <laughs> yeah. And after that, he, um, he got a lot of, like, uh, he basically became, like, a drow queen mm. on, like, Japanese reality TV shows. And, um... Yeah, I'm not actually sure. Is he supposed to be like almost like a transvestite in this film, or is that? Um, <laughs> I read somewhere that I read somewhere that he was, but I, I just I don't know if I totally see it. Well, just um, some, like uh, I remember like reading up this guy. Yeah, I think I remember re- reading up about Funeral Parade of Roses after watching that, and um, I believe that like he or she identified as like what we would consider to be like transgender now. Although I mean, obviously, like. Mm-hmm back then like there wasn't really like a like a total kind of conception of what that really meant yeah sure um, I, I just meant i just meant in this film in, in this <laughs> film um i i think now that that you told me this I, I do kind of see like a bit of androgyny with 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 that yeah. character um but i'm i guess i i don't know what to like do with that do you have like some some thoughts on that no, but that was just something I was thinking about yeah. during the film. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. I can I can definitely see that, yeah. It almost seems like something that 
Because that character essentially has like more screen time than like any other character. Yeah. Like, um, and it, it's 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 odd because it seems like such a it seems almost subversive to have like some somebody so like explicitly androgynous uh, to be that that much of a focal point. Um, I think that well, the reason why like um, why people might have not cared is because like uh, he plays like the full character um and mm-hmm. so like you're kind of like supposed to be like laughing at him like making fun of him um but also like they're, they're kind of like needed to be a character like this because other if it was if it was just um the advisor dude and then um Hidatora, then i think that like you wouldn't have that much sympathy for Hidatora. um and and while like um the movie i think is certainly like critical of Hidatora, without without like having any attachment to the character i don't think like most of the movie would have worked so you think Hidator is supposed to be like a sympathetic character? Um, I don't. I don't know if I would call him a sympathetic character, but rather, um, I think that that Kurosawa was banking on like people sympathizing with him to a certain extent because of um, like cause if you, if you don't do that, it, like the, the the entire movie doesn't really work um, because hmm. Saburo really only shows up. He has like one scene at the beginning beginning of the movie, and then he doesn't really show up again until like the third act of the movie. So, um, and he's, like, really the only, like, um, good character in the movie, um, besides the advisor, I guess, but he has, like, no power. Um, yeah. And so, like, if, it, if, 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 like, there was nothing, um, to, like, cover two-thirds of the movie, if there's, like, no one to really, like, sympathize with within those, like, two-thirds of the movie, then, um, I don't, I don't think, like, a lot of the movie, like, really would have worked, so, I, I think that's kind mm, of that's the role interesting. Of the role, yeah. I think, I, th- I thought it was that, uh, Saburo, Saburo, I definitely agree, is a sympathetic character, and I think mm-hmm. for the extent of the film, he's just supposed to be, like, the smart one and the most caring one, I think this is, like, <laughs> I, I mean, this is my, I, I think that's pretty clear, um, but I don't know if Hidatora, because Hidatora, to me, just seems like, seems like an idiot, I mean, he just seems like he, can't seem to uh yeah i agree but i think the reason that um you develop some sympathy for him well this might be just me is because um like the fool like loves him so much Mm -hmm. and like uh the fool is like really like affected by seeing him go mad um and so like i think like without that character then um like no one would really care about what happened to editora that's really fascinating I think I don't know. I don't know if I totally agree, mm. because to me this, this film is mostly about like depicting this like hellish, just like the hellish destruction of man. And mm. Hidatora to me is just a character who's just completely like uh, incapable of stopping it. I mean, in the beginning of the film, he was like, "I want more peace. I just want to like, I want my legacy to die, and I want to live in this castle now." Essentially, because mm. he felt his legacy, and so he was like, in a way, trying to prevent the kind of uh, this kind of further destruction, which is maybe you know at first seems like an extension of what I was talking about, like Kurosawa's earliest films, but then he's just, he just, he's completely incapable of just like the, the pure destructive power of man, um, that they unleash here. And, um, yeah. I mean, I guess to some extent he's, um, to some extent, yeah, he's a little bit sympathetic, you know, maybe at some points, but I, I don't know if he's, I don't know. I don't know if I felt like I was very like sympathetic to him that wasn't yeah. that wasn't what i loved about the film so much it's definitely um, I think, I yeah, was... more complicated it's a bit mm-hmm. nuanced yeah yeah the, the reason i thought this was a little bit interesting because uh i had just yesterday watched kagamusha and this is also like um um a film that has the the main like head of state in that film is a like uh 
is like a cruel warlord. I mean, he literally says in the very first scene, "Is like I banished <laughs> my father, I killed my son." He literally nice. says this in okay. the first film. Um, and despite that, like the characters, like like the main character of the film, just loves this guy. Like he just like falls head over heels over this guy, you know. Mm. And this is almost kind of seen in Iran because you know this this Hidori guy. I mean, like why help him? I mean, this guy's like he has no power. He's just like some dying old man, and yet this fool and like this fool and these other people are just like falling over head over heels for him. It's like, what, what is it, like, what is it trying to say? It's almost yeah. like one on one on one angle, it's trying to just talk about how like arbitrary and cruel these like uh, feudal structures were. Yeah. But on one hand, it has this almost like devotional love for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I feel is kind of a contradiction. Um, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> I agree. No, it's it's a really interesting contradiction. I think that a lot of um, his movies like play on this contradiction um, mm-hmm. because it, it it's kind of uh, so like these like uh, hypocritical like systems and codes um, are are like you know obviously like pretty bad in the long run, but at the same time they're also kind of the only thing that everyone living within them know um and like they're so they're so like ancient at this point right they're they're um they've existed them like longer than anyone else than anyone could remember basically like throughout like the history of like the very rich history of japan would you say would you say that it's 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 just so ingrained in japanese identity that they can't like like not do this they can't like yeah fall in love with this yeah yeah i mean and i mean obviously like i'm not japanese and i don't want to speak for the culture of japanese people (laughs) But I'd imagine that like a lot of um, these like codes and systems still like carry on today, too. Um, if you look at like the the very high like suicide rate in Japan, um, I think that that's like a, a, a big factor, and I think that that, that ties in with um, um, uh, like the ritual suicide, um, uh, among like ma- many many other uh, connections to, uh, to to feudal and ancient Japan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Ritual suicide. I don't know if that's like the biggest aspect of, but yeah, I, th- I think well, that that's the high suicide example. rate that's is like largely, one, uh, I would like say, I, I would say, yeah. okay, I don't want to, there's a lot of reasons for the high suicide rate. Of course, yeah. it's like the, 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 um, the kind of political stagnation in Japan, you know, the, um, the, you know, the, the liberal democratic party, of, uh, well, you know, the, the party obvious of has been basically been like constantly in rule. And so there's no, mm-hmm. there's, just, it's, it's kind of like a, a somewhat center right party. It's a little bit nationalist and it's kind of created this like economic stagnation for a lot of Japan. Yeah. And so this really hit hard in the late nineties when there was like a massive market crash. Um, and so this kind of, and this kind of like lack of, uh, you know, almost like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't talk too much about this because I'm kind of pulling this out of my ass. But it's <laughs> there's there's probably a lot more factors that that contribute to the suicide. Oh, certainly. I meant I, so I meant I meant specifically um, in how uh, suicide is viewed as a way of like saving face and a way of like saving honor. I think mm, is yeah, um, kind yeah. of like connects to like yeah, the I don't. Of that. I don't want to go too far with that because I don't want to like attribute that. Like, cause I think, yeah, it's, I think, I mean, it's, uh, it's I think, of course more complicated than that. I mean, people don't, I think, I think, I, I, I think, you know, people are committing suicide in a modern context. It's more to do with kind of general malaise. They feel rather than a feeling of like honor. It's more of like, um, because the, the idea of honors is you're connected to a broader, like, you know, honor is like a broader, like, uh, like social concept, right? And it's like, you're connected to that. 
in the same way other people are connected to honor. But I think I think that that context doesn't exist in modern Japan. So I don't know how far I'd go with this interpretation, but mm. I don't know. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So the reason I kind of want to also mention that is because um, yeah, for Kurosawa, I think this like feudal Japanese. Um, identity is very like crucial to like the Japanese ending. and I also talked a little bit about how like Oshima like hated I mean he fucking hated Kurosawa and a lot yeah. of other directors share that sentiment I mean maybe this is why because of the kind of changing Japanese like definition of self um, over time and so people just didn't just subscribe to the Kurosawa definition um, and this also of course like um, um, I think if we look because if you look at uh, Japanese history it's the um, I forgot was it the Meiji period the major period that ended in um, yeah I think Meiji yeah the Meiji era that ended in uh, in was was like the last feudal period in Japan it ended in 1912 mm-hmm. and within like 20 20 30 years you're suddenly having like uh, you know like this kind of capitalist modernization and it's all very sudden this kind of complete sudden shift from feudalism to like um, a more identi- a more like uh, personal identity driven like uh, uh, environment is just compl- it's just like it's very drastic and so this mm-hmm. is what causes this like massive like identity shifts um, and of course uh, Kurosawa I mean he grew up in the major period major period in 1912 I think Kurosawa was born in 1905 maybe something like that hmm. or, so so this was still like part of his identity so it's interesting um, I always forget like how um, how, how like 1910 he was born but... yeah I, I always forget like how, how uh, like the major period like didn't like uh didn't end until like fairly recently like the fact that it like mm-hmm. it, it it went like a little bit into the 20th century is just crazy to me yeah yeah exactly so this um yeah um i'm just gonna say a lot of this stuff i've like read already i'm not just pulling this stuff out of my ass this, <laughs> I, didn't, this I, didn't, I didn't think this, you were yeah this this idea of like the Meiji period effect the the, the kind of the, the abrupt shift from the Meiji period to like a more like capitalist centric uh period um mm-hmm. is like it's like studied by sociologists so. mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not something I'm just making up um but i think i think I think I'm just trying to understand the uh the reason people hated Kurosawa so much <laughs> yeah um yeah I think it's especially it's especially funny because I don't think that like Calling Kurosawa like a like a traditionalist would be very silly because I think all he does in his career is kind of like criticize uh, the cause of like medieval Japan, uh, feudal Japan, like a lot. Um, yeah, he, uh, he, like but all, it, all of his movies are like very like nuanced about it. I think. Um, yeah, but then again, we look like I said, we look at Iran and we look at Kagamusha. I mean, these have like a devotional love for these like um, these eras, like the yeah kind of the social structure the honor system like there's like something uh, i think Rousseau finds beautiful in them and it's almost like contradictory to like what he's saying yeah and this is why i'm kind of like that, unsure that, this this is i think this is the um the complicated relationship he has he has to these things because like mm-hmm. uh, like on the one hand um i think he like completely like despises them as we can see in, in ron because like they just lead to uh like constant like turmoil and death mm-hmm. but on, on the other hand like he has a just, just based on like the visuals of this movie, it's very clear that um, the aesthetic uh, is 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 very like important and interesting to him, and I think he views it like as, as something very beautiful. Um, mm, so maybe he's yeah. like tr- trying to like reconcile these two like contradictory ideas in his head um, on how much like he he loves the aesthetic versus um, how damaging the actual codes are. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel like there's more to say on this film. Do you have something? To talk about? <laughs> um, let me let me think. Um, I think we should. I think we should talk a bit about the uh, the cinematography a little bit more. So yeah. Um, I I mentioned I mentioned that these are really like long and static shots. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, so I think that's that that's part of it. Just like that de uh, detachment you talked about that being theatrical and, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just feel like it's just completely. Uh, it it's just it's this kind of lack of power of the individual to stop this kind of like, um, just like massive amount of chaos. Um, and maybe we should talk about the um, the, the 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 big fight scene, the third castle scene. Oh yeah, which I mean, I think the most interesting part of that is that there's no like sound i mean there's there's just a score over it right yeah like you don't hear any anything else there's it's no, like it's like this like strange like montage of death yeah and it's like like to like a symphony almost there's no like as diegetic sound that's the word there's no, yeah like, you don't hear spears like clanging on each other you know mm -hmm. it's uh yeah i would yeah <laughs> it's um I, I almost feel like the the theatricality like falters a little bit there um not like in a negative way but in, in that scene i think we get a lot more um like quick cuts and um less like wide shots um and uh yeah like less less like long takes and, and things like that um so like that, that 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 fight scene felt like very very cinematic to me um which, which kind of like contrasts with um the rest of the movie feeling like very theatrical uh although i think a lot of um the way that like the corpses are arranged in in that scene is also very like exaggerated and like a theatrical maybe even like a like a silent movie kind of style um yeah it, it, it feels like almost almost like uh these aren't like real people it's just kind of an abstract expression of some sort i mean yeah. there's like certain scenes you know we have uh um was a Hida, I'm just forgetting his name, Hidatora, right? Hidatori. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, him sitting and just the arrows whizzing by his face, you know? Yeah. The fact that almost like the, the the way everyone just kind of like just dies around him is almost like, it feels like a little bit too fake. I mean, there's the, that scene with the uh, the woman running in front of him and they all just kind of like fall instantly, you know? Yeah. Just the way that like he experiences death around him, it almost feels like... Um, outside of reality you know um mm. and then he just kind of like casually walks off the only survivor <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that, that's really like an amazing scene uh, that was, that was yeah. so great um, yeah and i quite like that scene afterwards with um him with the with the the joker the jester and the like the tall grass just like swooning around him do you remember this <laughs> yeah and he's, he's like collecting all the daisies um yeah, I think so. But it was it was really at that moment when he was like starting to lose his mind, right? Mm -hmm. And they were like trying to bring him back, and they were just kind of like, and he's just sitting in this field, just completely like out of control, and just the wind is just swirling all around him. And you can see it because you can see it like viscerally through the grass itself. I mean, that was a great scene. <laughs> That's great. Um, also, uh, the scene after that where. Um... They go to the uh, the brother of um, uh, the the wife of uh, of Jiro. Mm, yeah. Um, what's his What's his name? 
Um, uh, you Su- mean the you mean the blind man? Yeah, Surumaru, I think um, his name is. Yeah, Surumaru. Yeah, no, Jiro. Jiro was uh was one of his sons. So I yeah, well, Jiro, Jiro is married to. Oh yeah, Lady Sue. Lady Sue. Lady Sue. Sue. That brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, that, that's like, that, that's kind of where I think you get the, um, you, you, at least for me, kind of like solidified, like how, how like bad of a person, um, Hidatori like really was mm-hmm. because he, this so is you, actually, yeah, this is actually a difference from the King Lear play because mm-hmm. in the King Lear play, it's the, um, it's the uh, it's his enemies who blind him, but in this one, it's Hidetori himself who blinds him. So and that's that, a, that's a completely different meaning there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Key difference. <laughs> um. So yeah, because like when he meets with 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 Sue, you you kind of um. You get the sense that I mean he's he's clearly like, this uh, this monster. Uh, at least he was like in his younger self. That um he like completely like murdered uh, Sue's family, but Sue's like kind of, gotten over it to a certain extent. Um, and so, like, it's kind of, like, ambiguous, like, what you're supposed to feel, um, in that yeah, scene. Yeah, I feel, I feel as if Sue is, again, this, like, she has the same kind of convictions as Hidatori. I mean, she just realizes, I think she just wants to end the bloodshed, in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. And, of course, she has, like, a more interesting perspective, because she has been the, she's, she's kind of the, uh, in a way, byproduct of this bloodshed, you know? She kind of, you know, she had her whole, like, family get destroyed, and she kind of married into this one. You know, of course, there's a there's a kind of contrast between Lady Kaeda, right? Because Lady Kaeda uses that like um, and kind of like as a way to like manipulate herself into uh, manipulate the, the people around her um, in order to <laughs> cause more <laughs> grievance and more. Whereas Sue just wants, I think she just wants to, you know, not die <laughs> essentially. Yeah, <laughs> that's and, probably her. And so these these two women from like um, that have like that that have had like the same like tragedy happen to them kind of use this in, in different ways to try to like either get over it or, or you can see like how it's like clearly like influenced their lives but um despite that like um there is actually no solution for either of them because they both end up dying yeah. at the end of the movie so like so wait, yeah of course I, like like gets like brutally murdered her like head gets chopped off and then uh, yeah lady kaeda gets um slashed by uh the advisor for uh jiro i guess i guess the ending is different but i also feel like sue I don't remember like even like what her face looks like honestly. I just oh yeah. <laughs> I, she, I don't think she, she's not she's not on the very for very long. I think she's only like in, in like like a few. No, scenes, but she, right. She's she, she seems to be a, she seems to be a crucial character. But like Lady Kaeda yeah. is like like she gets her face like the forefront. And she becomes like, mm-hmm. part of this environment, right? Whereas Sue is ultimately a, a slave to it. And of course, yeah. I think the very last scene where she dies, right. Um, does she get her like? She's get beheaded, or is that? Or am I misremembering that? Um, Sue or uh, Lady Kaeda? Yeah, Sue, Sue. Yeah, she Sue. gets beheaded. Um, yeah. So she, so she gets like... beheaded on um, like Lady Kaeda's orders. Yeah, exactly. I mean that that final shot. It almost feels like some kind of like it just it has like almost like no empathy for her. It's just like this kind of like wide shot again. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, like maybe in a way. Yeah, maybe a way of her being beheaded is kind of almost a commentary on the fact that she has no, like, like her face is so, like, like is not present at all in this film. And in the way mm-hmm. that, that means her, like, her ideas don't exist in this, or her, like, aspirations don't exist in this environment. It's just, like... Yeah. Um, well, because, like, like, if... Existentially cruel. Because, like, if, um... All, all the characters in this movie are in hell. And so there there is no escaping hell. So no matter, like, what you try to do, no matter if you have some kind of, like religious epiphany you're still going to be stuck in this hell 
Yeah. Um, and yeah. So, and showed like she she meets like a very a very similar fate to a Lady Kaeda, even though like she is, um, a much yeah. better person. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. That's yeah. Um, I guess also the ending is also really interesting because of the, that final shot, which is like probably the most isolating shot like in this whole film, which is yeah. like filled with isolating shots, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just this guy, and of course he he's blind and he drops, and he's kind of like standing on the edge of a cliff, not really sure where to walk, and he you know, drops the Buddha. Yeah, um, and again, maybe that's kind of like just that total like that just how like the the isolating almost like results. Of all this bloodshed and violence that you feel at the end, which I think is really great. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a great um a great scene to end on. I think it's a great like microcosm for the entire yeah. film. Um, um, I I also thought it was interesting that um, they chose not to show the um the other um generals invading uh Jiro's castle at the end of the movie. So they they just show like um them about to enter, and then it hard cuts to um. Suramuro like on the on the ruins of like his old castle so they they don't even like mm-hmm. he doesn't he doesn't choose to like show like another battle because mm-hmm. like it's kind of like pointless in a way um, perhaps in a way the yeah. other thing maybe I'm, I'm gonna okay i'm bringing up kagamusha again i know you haven't seen it but in kagamusha <laughs> if you know the historical context of it basically after this clan was defeated um the the clan that took it over basically was able to like almost end the bloodshed and create unity hmm. um amongst you know amongst japan and so but uh kurosawa never shows that he just shows like just the violence and cruelty of the final battle that's all he shows in the film and so this this context of this later reckoning is like never presented and maybe you can extend that to this film because you also talked about every character being in hell i don't know if i totally agree with that because i mean some of the it just seems this family this clan is in hell (laughs) and everyone in in this because i mean they 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 probably die well at the end i guess jiro is a little bit ambiguous whether he's dead or not but yeah um yeah but it, it it's like it's possible that they take over it they create like and you know there's not enough political strife to like have any more violence and you know yeah i mean i, I suppose create... i suppose that's possible but i mean just based off of like um how nihilistic this entire movie is i, I don't i don't know mm-hmm. if like um if i could like assume that um, yeah i definitely so, think like it's I mean, leaning in the other direction and that like because the only thing that's really happening is um the violence is being like perpetrated by like the next clan and then then there'll, there'll be another clan after that and another clan after that i mean maybe but again if you look at the kagamusha context you you literally have like an, a specific historical moment which we know for a fact like it there there is a way to me uh there is a way to um you know uh like release a little bit of tension and have, have peace generally right mm-hmm. and so maybe that that possibility exists here but maybe it doesn't it just doesn't exist within this clan this Takeda clan, right? I think if that yeah. were the, the case, there would have to be something specific about um, this clan that would like set well, them aside from the rest. Because probably the the big thing is that this this Hidetori was a mass murderer essentially, and he not only killed all these people, he took all their children and right. <laughs> integrated them into his own family. So his entire but, I mean, legacy this, this, is that of bloodshed and violence, right? Right, but this isn't like um, something exclusive to to this clan. I mean, this happened like all the time in sure, in, like, but the, but if we if we look at the context, he's not he's not like a particularly um uh like violent um maniacal like uh, a ruler i mean like i don't know he well, seems like a very typical i one. mean i mean now he seems like a typical one i think because this film portrays him as a fool as a complete dumbass who's unable to like 
um, who basically sets in motion this like violent like um, dispute between the the sons and his family, almost like unknowingly, just thinking mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, they'll be together. You know, it's good. Um, but he doesn't realize that they're they're basing their entire ideology off of his legacy, right? And his legacy is just pure cru- cru- cruelty and violence. And of course, mm-hmm. um, I think what the film is trying to say, or maybe part of what the film is trying to say is that he's unable to like subvert this you know environment that he's created and he kind of makes him look like an idiot for that but we do see um examples of like two other clans in the movie that are that are like separate from from this family um mm-hmm. and it seems like um well we don't know like the extent to which um like how, how ruthless they are we do know that um they're planning on waiting for um uh, the family to kind of like interfight and then like kill each other and then take over at the end. And we see like one of the one of the clans um, uh, fighting uh, Euro's clan at the very end, and assumingly like they're they're gonna win. Um, but it doesn't seem like that other clan is portrayed in like a positive context when compared to um, to, to the family. Hmm. So um, yeah. I think that if there was if there was something shown you're in the movie, it's not, not sympathetic. You're saying yeah, like they're not like we're not some, okay. If um if there was something shown in the movie um as an alternative to um the uh, to the Ichimonji clan's like system, then I, I might be like inclined to agree that there is some kind of hope in this world. But because like all we see is like destruction, death, this like horrible cycle of violence. I think they would be trying to suggest that um, it's just going to continue, and then, like it doesn't really matter that um, uh, the Ichimonji clan is like is is done. The next clan that's, that's going to come is gonna is gonna like act in the same way. Mm. Yeah, maybe. I mean, my in my view, I think it's just a little bit ambiguous that we don't know that it's possible yeah. that. Yeah. No, certainly um... it's ambiguous. I just said, um, I, I I I the only reason I fail to see like a positive possibility mm. is because not, i don't find any suggested yeah in the film. i think certainly yeah i think you're certainly right that it feels really nihilistic um mm-hmm. i mean in my view it's just a little bit ambiguous and i think the possibility um this i just don't i just don't totally agree that it's just going to be this constant cycle of violence that never is going to end i don't think the movie's suggesting this necessarily um i think um you know i know akira kurosawa has himself has himself said that his movies aren't like uh, explicitly political, like he's not really. We, we can, of course, you know, we're talking about politics a lot. Of course, I think we can connect it to the political context, but he's not necessarily like, I'm um, consciously trying to make a, a political statement with his films. Yeah. Um. Uh. So I think from his perspective, he's just trying to find human empathy in this just like, like total like, um, like montage of cruelty that he's created here. Um, and I think the idea of like what's going to happen next and like the, you know, what the next clan is going to do is a little, is, is kind of almost immaterial. Um, I don't think, you know, you're saying they're, they're not in a sympathetic light. I mean, they're not really in any light, honestly. I mean, they're just kind of there in the background. We we don't get any kind of characterization for them, to be honest. Um, I mean, they, they're a little bit, we, we know they're a little bit like, um, opportunistic. Yeah. Opportunistic. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, you know, <laughs> everyone's opportunistic, of course. It's not like, it's not a specific indictment of them or anything. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, is that uh, all we want to say about Ron? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll just say one thing. Um, if you watch Ron, 
and you really like it, I've mentioned Kagamusha a hundred times already. <laughs> yeah, watch Kagamusha. Kagamusha is often viewed as a lesser film to run as a kind of prerequisite to it, but this is a very reductive view, I think. I think Kagamusha is a really brilliant film on its own. I think the one thing about Kagamusha um, that, I mean, I noted in my <laughs> letterbox review, <laughs> was that it's a lot more dirty and disgusting than this one. Where this one, it almost feels like the bloodshed is like scenic in a way. And in, uh, in Kagamusha, it's the complete, o- and the complete opposite. It just feels like almost like it's a grueling to watch at some point. And maybe this is partly the reason why people don't like it as much, but I think it also makes it a lot more uh, really interesting in its own its own respect. I might actually like um, it more because of that. I, I love it when movies do that. <laughs> so definitely check that one out. That one's also very long. <laughs> so, I think it's actually longer than this one. By like oh, a few minutes. Okay. Um, so yeah, buckle up for that one. Um, right, maybe I'll, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll catch on the next Criterion sale. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, and his next film, Dreams, was, um, it's it's kind of often viewed as this almost like, if, if as this almost like epilogue for, uh, for Kurosawa's filmography. I don't know to what extent that's true, but, um, you know, you're free to interpret as you wish. Uh, but it's certainly, like, it's a film that reflects on, like, everything Kurosawa is, like, his entire identity as a filmmaker. A lot of what I've mentioned here... Um, is, is, is kind of reflected in that film. And it's it's also, like, broadly talking about uh, Japan. There's very specific uh, talks about, like, um, uh, like, nuclear disaster, which seems a little bit, you know, this is obviously after the after the uh, the Chernobyl disaster this movie was released in 1990. Um, mm-hmm. But it's almost like, it's almost like foreshadowing the, the Fukushima disaster in 2011, which is, you know, a little bit ominous, but interesting. Yeah, it's 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 really it's a really fascinating film. It's I think it's a lot more positive even in the end than this film, even if it's such like a loose collection of dreams. Um, this was a film that yeah, dreams is a film that wasn't really received well in the West. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> it's a really good movie. <laughs> we are notorious happen. for being very <laughs> stupid over here. All right, I'll go with that. That's a good interpretation. <laughs> a Dream is a really brilliant film. Um, I don't like it as much as Ron, and probably not as much as Kagamushi either. But it's 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 really it's a really beautiful film, and certainly like it's just like it just, if you just want to see the power of Kurosawa as just like a filmmaker, that like that's that's the film to go to. But yeah, Boris, dollars to donuts. Which one do you prefer? Wait, would you say dollars, dollars or donuts? Dollar, dollars to donuts. Put your money where your mouth is. What do you prefer, Kagamusha or Ron? Oh, oh, I prefer Ron, honestly. But okay. uh, Kagamusha, I think, is very good. And I'm just saying people are very reductive about it. I've actually seen a lot of people who have said Kagamusha is not only their favorite uh, favorite out of the two, but their favorite Kurosawa movie, period. Huh. Um, so Ron definitely has its own, like, has a very, like, strong appeal to it. So, yeah. For me, for me definitely Rashomon is still my favorite, but um, I have yeah. at least, like, <laughs> 20 more of his movies to see so uh, <laughs> that, that can yeah, easily change this is, this is a this is a hot take i think rushman is the weakest of his like so-called masterpieces no way <laughs> no oh, i man. just don't find it i don't find that i don't think it i mean oh, uh, i don't think it has that much stuff to it <laughs> i love rashomon i think it's endlessly rich mm, maybe maybe i'll have to maybe i'm just being dismissive of it. but i mean <laughs> i watched it and i just didn't think it was like I thought it was. I thought it was good. I was. I'd probably say I thought it was great, but I didn't think it was as strong as like some of his like other films. But, you okay. Know. Well, I hope that's own. the case He's... because if that is the case, then I have a lot of good movies ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, that definitely is the case. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the case that you have a lot of good movies ahead of you. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs>
Um, have you been watching anything good recently? Yeah, I watched a great movie called Twenty Forty Six. Have you seen this one? Uh, <laughs> no. Is that? Oh, that's is that that's like the uh, the prequel to like Blade Runner Twenty Forty Nine, right? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't consider this theory, but now that you mentioned it, it's funny <laughs> because um, I was talking about like Twenty Forty Six to some of my friends like before I'd seen it. And, um, they kept asking me, like, oh, no, 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 my, uh, so my roommate thought that 2046 was a sci-fi film, and I told him, no, 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 you idiot, it's the sequel to In the Mood for Love, and now I feel I mean, like in a way, an it idiot. is a sci-fi film. Yeah, now yeah. I feel like, I know, I feel like an idiot, because it is kind of like a sci-fi film. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it's like, it's like this, like, weird blend of, like, um, sci-fi, and then, like, a period piece, um, but yeah, yeah. I, I it's a... very much about looking into the future and kind of seeing yeah. that like um it's not explicitly a sci-fi because within the context of the film he's like writing a story mm-hmm. um but it's very much like it's almost like thematically a sci-fi in a way i guess i don't know if i best describe it but but also it, a like lot the of sci-fi... like the, the peel of sci-fi is still here in this film so yeah i think maybe taking the sci-fi isn't too far off but like also like a lot of the sci-fi elements kind of like seep their themselves into the main narrative to a point where like at times it's hard to distinguish between the yeah. two because they kind of like yeah. play off each other you know and there, there's like mm-hmm. an extended sequence that takes place in like the sci-fi world it's like at least like a i want to say like 20 minutes or like half an hour is like dedicated um at once to Def- that. yeah 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 i mean it's it's it, the film it reflects it, it definitely reflects about the events in the film and i think this is even explicitly stated in the film about how his sci-fi story is uh is incorporating events from his own life yeah, um, and you can see his almost his like almost like unconscious, um, almost like metaphysical like representation of how he sees certain things through this like sci-fi metaphor that he uses. Yeah, um, um, for me, like this is by far my favorite Wong Kar Wai film. Um, I had like a really big emotional experience, personal experience with this <laughs> film. I, I was like, I, I don't cry during movies a lot, but I can I can say that I think like around a third or halfway through the movie um till the end i was like constantly sobbing (laughs) um just like um the way that uh this film portrays like love and relationships i've i've never seen another like movie or really like any other piece of art that's like portrayed it in a way that felt very like personal to me and kind of um Mm. very real so um i mean i i think that like the concept of like the soulmate or whatever is definitely something invented by fiction. Um, yeah. And of course, like, like that comes up in movies all the time, but the, what this movie does something, does something really interesting with that. And, um, basically this movie is like a bunch of, um, short stories in, in a way with, um, the, the main character Chow, like meeting like all these like different women and, um, hmm. at times like writing like his own, his own story. But they're all kind of like loosely connected with, um, well, him being the main character, and um, they're all like his like searches and like failures to like find love, since he's like this um, he's like this very like deeply traumatized guy who um, thought he had found like his soulmate, but like kind of let her like um, out of like his grasps, and now he's kind of like trying to recreate the same feeling as much as he can um yeah i think that like it it, is very accurate to um how human relationships are in reality and that like 
the people that we fall in love with are um well we fall in love because well, we're lonely and also um because they're close to us because of proximity um the thing i think like proximity uh, psychologically speaking like proximity is the um uh the biggest factor for like falling That's in true. love yeah um <laughs> it's obviously a bit more complicated now because of the internet but uh we don't we're not going to talk about that no i mean yeah everyone <laughs> everyone i've ever dated uh i've taken classes with so you know yeah yeah there you <laughs> go i mean like proximity, yeah. i could i can never really do like a like a long distance relationship because I, I need like that kind of um like uh personal intimacy uh i, I need to like you know, being like near somebody or like at least like talking mm. to them or, like seeing them you know uh be a very like difficult otherwise for me so i, I guess like that's why um i like deeper yeah. connections to this movie and and funnily enough um so boris and i were texting about this movie afterwards because we both like saw it around the same time and i told him that um i i didn't get like much if any um political commentary from this movie and mm-hmm. um uh it, you had a completely different experience you thought that it was like probably his <laughs> well, most political I mean... film right <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you the sense, to the extent that it's a very personal film still. Um, mm-hmm. It can be both. It can be both. With this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like it, out of all his films, this film is much more politically conscious of the world around it. I mean, you know, in a way, like you can view this trilogy, which is also consists of, this would be the third of the trilogy, which consists of the first film, Days of Being Wild, the second being In the Mood for Love, and the third being 2046. Um, you can kind of see these as looking at the past, the, the present, and the future, right? Mm-hmm. So the film looking... Um, into the future, I think is a little bit more politically conscious of what's going to happen. They're a bit just more right. aware. Um, but yeah, I, I wrote to you a bunch of stuff that I thought I noticed. <laughs> um, I don't know to like how much of that stuff is actually like relevant to the film, but there was a lot of like interesting thing the films was the film was like um, like mentioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just wondering, like, uh, yeah. So of course, the numbers twenty forty six, twenty forty seven. I think this is like. Um, definitely related to the fact that uh, that this is when um, China's kind of kind of like take control of Hong Kong supposedly. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't already happened. Yeah, yeah, but they. <laughs> I mean, in this film, so the handover was in 1997, which is about uh, I mean seven years before this film was released. Yeah, yeah. So this is something they are like looking to the future. This is something you see in the future, right? And mm-hmm. it's kind of like it's a little bit ambiguous, like what their people's relationship with that is. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, a lot of Hong Kong cinema is, is strongly about um, this kind of, like, uncertainty about identity. Yeah. Um, because you know, before the handover, they were under British government, and it's almost, like, absurd, just, like, there's almost, like, no British influence in, like, the culture in Hong Kong, yet it's, like, the entire ruling class is, <laughs> is British people. And yeah. it, it, it's almost, like, absurd, that disconnect there. Um, I'll just quickly mention a great film on that, Um is uh, Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind by Tsui Harg. Um It's mm. a really great film that talks about it's 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 it talks about this youth who almost feels like sociopathic in context of this, within this film, but it's all in context of this kind of like absurdity of like British rule over like a non-British Hong Kong. I was going to mention uh, Rush um, Hour. Things really fascinating film. I'm kidding. Rush Rush Hour. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh, you're the Jackie Chan movie? Yeah. Right, maybe. I haven't seen that one in a long time, so I, I don't know if I can comment on that. <laughs> it's um, actually a very deep film. Um, you, know, you, you know a lot of brain cells to understand yeah. that. Right? Yeah. High IQ. Yeah. <laughs> Not high enough IQ. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, Sue Hucker, I really want to see stuff by him. Um, he's, he's been on like, my, my watches mm-hmm. for a while. Is he the guy who did... Um, what's he, what's he like, most famous for? 
Um, he's he did he did like an I don't think he's, there's a he did like a, some movies in uh, in the U.S. with uh, Jean Claude Van Damme. Mm, um, gotcha. I guess those are technically what he's most famous for. Oh right, he did like the um, Once Upon a Time in China series, right? Yeah, Once Upon a Time in China is probably his most famous one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I knew that he had like a uh, weird. He was also a producer with, like... for uh, John John Woo. Yeah, yeah, I heard he had like, a, like a weird relationship with uh, with John Woo. Like, um, they had, like a lot of like creative differences for um, a Better Tomorrow too, which resulted in um, apparently so mm-hmm. uh, like Hark wanted to. Uh, cut the movie to like a certain length. John Woo wanted to be cut to a different length, and so they just said "fuck it" and they handed it to like a third-party editor that just <laughs> and said like, "Okay, you can do whatever you want with this because like we we can't decide on like what we want uh, together." Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and Sui Hard directed a better tomorrow three. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I know he was John Woo's producer for. I'm not actually sure the extent of the creative differences, but. Yeah, no, Two Hearts is definitely great. Uh, John Woo, Ringo Wem, um, I've mentioned him before on this, on, on this podcast, but mm-hmm. uh, really great uh, action director from Hong Kong. Um, I need to like expand more. Uh, oh, we were talking about <laughs> um, politics and twenty forty six. Yeah, yeah. This, um, yeah, again, this like lack, this kind of uh, this lack of identity and the kind of uh, the political like um, sector of. Of Hong Kong is uh, it's kind of a focus a lot of uh, uh, these Hong Kong films and I mean if you want to understand Hong Kong films a little bit more maybe trying to familiarize yourself with that I mean this one is I think just very explicitly political um, mm-hmm. yeah, like the the events literally take place during the 1967 Hong Kong riots which were riots against uh, the British ruling class um, yeah which is a you know literal like <laughs> it's no uh, little representation there, yeah. representation of like that. Yeah, a little representation of that kind of like a dissonance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what else did I say? Yeah, um, the the big one, I think a lot of like uh, maybe like English speaking audiences might miss is the fact that they're speaking different dialects. Uh, so um, Tony Lung's character this whole time. So let me look up what their names are so I don't just. So uh, I think do Tony, you remember Tony, Tony Lung's, Lung's is, character's is, name? Yeah, he's Chow. Chow, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so yeah, Chow, Chow speaks Cantonese this whole time, um, and Cantonese is, is of course the language they speak in Hong Kong. They'll speak in in Macau, um, which part of this this film mentions briefly. Um, and then Zhang Ziyi's character Bai Ling is uh, only speaks Mandarin, and I mean their relationship is kind of. I mean, you, you say this is a couple of stories, but I would say that their relationship is really like the <laughs> the biggest focus of the film. Um, uh, him and who? Sorry. Um, and so there's like a violin. Uh, si plays a mm. kind of famous Chinese actress. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she only speaks Mandarin, which is only which is not spoken in Hong Kong. Um, yeah. So if if you're not familiar with the Chinese language, um, it's essentially when when people talk about the Chinese language, I mean they usually refer to Mandarin because statistically that's what the most people speak. And but Mandarin is only really spoken in like mainland China, and. Um, if you go to Hong Kong, it's basically only uh, Cantonese. And so these are technically the same language because they have the same written language, um, but they're different dialects, and they're not mutually intelligible. So if someone is speaking Cantonese to you and you're speaking Mandarin, you're not necessarily going to understand each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that um, this uh, 
the fact that Chow is speaking Cantonese and Bai Ling is speaking Mandarin back to him, it's almost like it's I mean, it's it's not realistic. It's almost like fantastical concept. Yeah, and so, and this happens like uh, uh, maybe a few times in his movies, like in Happy Together also. Yeah, and Happy Together that also that also comes up. Um Yeah, I mean also uh the um the other thing I mentioned to Duran was that uh the um the the hotel owner I don't remember his name. Mr. Wong <laughs> uh also speaks Mandarin. But not only does he speak Mandarin, um he has a rural accent. I think. I think he has mm. a rural accent. <laughs> um um and his daughter speaks Cantonese. Uh so it's, it's all very odd. It's this yeah. Yeah, so um, it, it's obviously like something. It, it, it's just it's fantastical enough to like catch your attention. Um, I'm not entirely clear about like what the political context of that is. Um, maybe if I read more about it, I get it. But it's yeah. I mean, it's like <laughs> it's it's definitely um, in some ways talking about uh, this relationship between uh, uh, Hong Kong and China that just kind of came about after 1997. Yeah. Um, and it's it's you know of course they they you can you can you can take that ending when he's like oh I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know be with you I don't remember what he exactly says it's like oh I'm not gonna borrow myself to you or something I'm not gonna lend myself to you yeah mm-hmm. um I, I as almost like, like him as almost like yeah it's almost like a metaphor of like Hong Kong speaking to China but you know maybe not mm-hmm. <laughs> who knows that's one way of looking at I it. know you you probably don't like. I, I know you don't probably don't like that interpretation because it's a lot more personal to you. <laughs> well, I think I think, I think that um, holds a metaphor. Well, I, I think that uh, it can always work on like two levels. You know, it is that that uh, that that one. Um, I didn't really see that one when I watched it, just because um, I'm not as familiar with the context. Um, and I guess I was also yeah. like way too emotionally invested <laughs> to notice anything else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I really love this film, 2046 as well. Um, I, it's it's I, 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 it's not my favorite <laughs> Wong Kar Wai film. Fallen Angels? Um, I think I think maybe it's just... No, my favorite is Happy Together. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's just that um, I, th- I think maybe... This and In the Mood for Love, I also felt a little bit claustrophobic for me. And I like this, like, uh, mm. Fallen Angels choking his breath and Happy Together, all a kind of very, like free-flowing but at the same time kind of uh, meaningless with the amount of like space these characters have mm-hmm. um and that was something i really connected to uh um when i think i, I think I, I must have i don't know which one i watched first <laughs> whichever one i watched first like three four years ago um i think I, I kind of related to like my present context of you know feeling feeling like i have i i, I can i have like all this opportunity to go wherever i want now that i'm a little bit older um, but kind of feeling the meaningless and that kind of n- not really finding meaning in the, all that kind of space. And that was something I really related to. And so really happy together because happy together specifically about someone going to a foreign country. And, um, I mean, I grew up in, uh, I grew up in Europe and coming to the U S and, you know, kind of <laughs> trying to like form an identity. It always feels, you know, in some ways I feel like an outsider. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, so happy together really like was, was, was a big uh, part to me, but I think, yeah, I mean, Wonka Wai is a very specific visual language. It's a very, like, romantic view of, like, lonely people, which, yeah. I mean, I'm always going to love. It was really, like, happy to, to watch this movie after not, not having seen a Wonka Wai film for, I think, like, over a year. 
So oh, yeah, well. <laughs> it's a great time, I think. Yeah, it's great to come back. Um, funnily enough, uh, so you mentioned that uh, this is the third film and um, this this kind of like a like a love trilogy or, or, or something uh, like this loose trilogy that he was doing. But um, uh, I think Wong Kar Wai actually mentioned that. Um, so his new series, Blossom Shanghai, is gonna be the third movie in the in the mood for love twenty forty six, and I guess Blossom Shanghai series, which is which is really weird. I think he like forgot think, that he directed um, Days of Being. I think I, th- I think he said I th- I think he said it was be going to be the fourth film. If I read the headline, no, actually, I just read. I I, I read the the headline. I read a different headline that said. Um, he said it was gonna be the third one, so I don't know. Maybe it's like a like a mistranslation or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, did, did you get okay, a chance yeah. to well, the, uh, end of, the end of Did you get a chance to see um yeah. the trailer for Blossom Shanghai? Oh no, I don't usually watch trailers. Um, I was gonna say that the end of Days of Being Wild, I think Chow appears at like the very end of the film, and of course yeah. Lulu. Um, there's literally a character in both Days of Being Wild, and um, like the mother in Days of Being Wild is a character, and uh, the younger version of herself is in Twenty Forty Six. Oh, interesting! Um, I didn't catch that, but I, so, I knew I knew that um, um, Maggie Maggie Chiang like plays the same character throughout all the movies, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Su, um, Su, Su so Lee does Zen, that Tony. Right? <laughs> Tony, Leon, yeah, Suli yeah. Jen. Um, but yeah, uh, I, um, I'm I'm very excited. Any other movies? I'm very excited for Boston Shanghai. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. Any other movies? Yeah, I've watched. I watched a few. I'll, I'll go through a couple I've seen, and then and then you can you can um, you can go ahead. So, um, Happy Together. I saw that that recently. It was very good. Um, it's a great been, movie. Yep, <laughs> I really yep. love that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's one you've been recommending for a while. Glad I, I saw that. Um, Female Trouble was great. My first John Waters. Um, and I watched mm. a a couple of uh, William Freakin movies. Um, Cruising, and Killer Joe. I think Cruising mm. is a is like a really underrated film um so it's about this um it's about al pacino who plays a detective who goes undercover into the uh like gay snm scene in like late 70s early 80s new york um but like friedkin kind of like just becomes disinterested with like the uh the serial killer plot line halfway through the movie because he's looking for a serial killer and it becomes like this weird yep. like exploration of um of uh uh, Al Pacino's character, uh, and like kind of like the the reality and like subjectivity like starts like shifting. So yeah, that was really good. Um, finally got around to seeing The Hunt. You recommended that to me after I watched the Hunt. Um, yeah. uh, another round. Yeah, that was that was very very good. And um, Face Off is a masterpiece. It's probably the greatest movie ever made. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so good. So good. I've so seen good. Face Off. I've seen Face Off like. 10 times but the last time i watched it i was 15 really but i just remember it was like yeah i love that movie when i was younger Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> i don't know if i can comment out so much on it now but yeah. face off i'm going to take his face <laughs> off um and then last night i saw uh faust which is really good the oh, uh, faust, yeah. now one yeah uh, it's like some... yeah um yeah freaking is a director i kind of want to go into more i mean what i watched french connection him? when i was a lot younger hmm um, so I guess the only two films I've seen about him was French Connection, and I also watched *Slow and Delay*, uh, *To Live and Die in L.A.* Oh yeah, that about so a year ago. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was really yeah, definitely one of the most like underrated films of like the '80s um, in terms of just like it's such it sits it sits almost like in contrast to like all these like uh, like 
um, buddy cop movies back in the day that are kind of almost like glorifying this kind of like uh, no-nonsense police culture that yeah, I, mean, I don't know if it exists, but it certainly exists in these movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then like, and then and then you have like this like cocaine fueled like crazy maniac um, going around and just like shooting people and like getting yeah. in trouble with the U.S. government. <laughs> yeah, um, with, with a great really performance by Defoe yeah. too. Defoe was great in that movie. Of course, yeah, yeah. I, I I've been meaning to watch more Friedkin. Of course, after yeah. seeing To Live and Die in LA, I'm like, yeah, I gotta watch more. I gotta watch more at some point. So, of course, yeah, Sorcerer's but, the big one I'm missing. Yeah, so definitely, <laughs> my so my favorite um, Friedkins are definitely Sorcerer, Cruising, and To Live and Die in LA, which I all kind of view as as great movies. Um, but uh, yeah, the I think that like all of those are, are like pretty slept on when compared to like The Exorcist and The French Connection, and I like The Exorcist. Not the biggest fan of the French Connection, but I definitely view like those those three I mentioned yeah. are like far superior. I, I just think. I just I just forgot that he directed The Exorcist, so I will oh, yeah. see The Exorcist. <laughs> okay, gotcha. <laughs> I was about to ask you because I don't think you didn't um, mention it. <laughs> um, also, uh, Killer Joe is pretty good. Um, it was his, I think it was his last like um, narrative feature film. Um, it's uh, it's 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 kind of uh, messy, but. The ending is one of the best I've seen, like, ever. Mm. It's it's incredible. the The tension is just uh, it's it's so well done in that movie at, at the at the end. Yeah, and uh, I think Freakin has yeah, the ballsiest just... cuts to black, um, in cinema. the The cut to black, <laughs> both in Cruising and in Killer Joe, are just sublime. Yeah, I'll have to see those. Yeah, since I recommend The Hunt to you um yeah i mean what'd you think of the hunt like what anything i really like the hunt um, <laughs> so you liked it but it was just something better yeah so i was i was concerned about like near the beginning and midway of the movie that um i, I was concerned um because i didn't i wasn't really detecting on like what the film was trying to say or like what it was going for because don't get me wrong it's like an incredibly like well done well written incredibly well acted drama but it felt like it was highlighting an issue that didn't really exist, and the issue being like being um, falsely accused of, of of pedophilia, which is like not really something that like happens. But um, I kind of got this. I, I I got a. I understood what 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 it was going on kind of like later. What um. And what I was interested in the most is how even after Mads Mikkelsen's character is cleared of um, like legally cleared from um, being accused of a pedophile. Uh, He's still like branded that way in his community, um, and so much so that like even in the ending, where like you think that um, he's like been reaccepted to the community, it's been like a year, a, a year later, and um, like there's a huge party thrown for um, his son, like finally getting his hunting license, and he's kind of like been reaccepted. Um, the the end the the end of the movie, um, he's he he gets shot at while hunting. And you, you don't see the person's face who, like, shoots at him. And it, it's kind of, like, this, like, ambiguous sense of, like, um, he's always going to have this, like, stigma attached to him for the rest of his life, even though, like, he didn't actually do anything wrong. Um, and I think it's really interesting. And it says a lot about how um, uh, we think of ourselves and other people. Um, the actual, like, facts of what someone has done usually do not um correlate to like how we judge them as people it's always uh feeling or kind of like 
um, yeah, getting like a, gen- a general like sense uh, of what's going on. Sometimes it's correlated with facts. Sometimes not. Usually not. I mean, um, if I if I think about like the people that I like and I don't like, it's very rare that I can give you like a a, a list of facts saying why. Um, and I really want yeah. to check out uh, the celebration too, um, but I like can't find it anywhere. Yeah, in my oh yeah, <laughs> Eric, if you want to, I'll send you a link um, <laughs> later. Later. <laughs> yeah, the the uh, um, yeah, I think the celebration is probably the strongest film. Um, the hunt, yeah, I think the hunt is really was. I mean, you know, in terms of being like a really visceral like feeling of just being totally like oppressed by a community, almost like to an absurd degree. Like you're talking about facts like there's a part of this film is that this girl starts denying that she said that she was lying like midway through the film like she says she just straight up says she was lying mm-hmm. but this almost doesn't even matter because it's like his that kind of um i mean you can maybe you can interpret a few ways you said like there's a kind of there's the stigma in the computer the computer is just stronger than any kind of fact um but it just maybe maybe it just talks but for me it was just something about like how like that kind of yeah i mean how that kind of uh rumor just starts spreading and it becomes like uh it's almost becomes like it becomes more difficult to like uh to like um yeah it becomes more more difficult to like deny after mm-hmm. a certain point or like try to that it just like becomes almost part of the community which i guess is what you're talking about like the stigma the ending yeah um but yeah i, 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 I really liked how um, like, the, uh, like the ending was like a little bit ambiguous because of that I would I would have been very disappointed if like uh-huh. everything was wrapped up together nicely at the end. It was yeah. I mean, I feel like even with that film though, I don't know. I mean, I was thought the ending was a bit too sudden. Like the way he was uh, just suddenly like kind of led back into the community. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 fact that there's like a, like know. a hard cut and then like a one year later thing was a little bit yeah questionable. But I think this also was, this was actually this is kind of. Hmm? <laughs> go ahead <laughs> oh okay um I, I think also like um that hard cut to one year later is also kind of like a way of tricking the audience into thinking that everything is like wrapped up nicely um and i think without that it would be harder to sell like the final scene in the movie mm-hmm. no yeah i definitely agree but i think this idea of like it just you just feel so like viscerally alone throughout this whole film um, or other you know watching Mads go through all of this um, doesn't that this kind it, of man. almost like cut to like oh everything is okay now it just it just feels like way too sudden um yeah and i mean i think i'm just mentioning this because this is <laughs> this is actually just broadly my problem with thomas vinterberg and you're gonna definitely disagree with me on this <laughs> but i feel like i feel like all the all his ed- i mean he's so good at like creating this like at like exploiting these like minute like character moments and creating like this like uh you know uh creating this like like um, like incredible amount of depth in these kind of almost like ostensibly like normal communities um um and i always feel like his ending is never appreciated like the depth of that you know um and i felt that with the hunt mm. uh i felt that with i felt that a little bit of the celebration too you'll probably know what i mean when you see that mm. um i was watching the celebration i was constantly wondering like how is he gonna actually wrap this up and i don't think the answer i mean it wasn't so bad but i don't think the answer he gave was that great and mm-hmm. I also feel this with another round. All right, get out. Get out. We're done. You're done. Get out. 
I, I will not take yeah, any slander like... for the ending of another round on my podcast. Yeah, you, you you talked about like your list of hating people. This is this is one of them, right? Yeah, it's like a tangible reason. Yeah, shout uh, <laughs> to number one. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I just I just feel like another round. Like it's it's it feels like a film that uh, just feels like it's really like it seems like characters are trying to like regain their youth. And trying to regain some kind of like spark in their lives that doesn't exist anymore, they feel like that spark is going to re- reinvigorate the rest of their lives, which to some extent it does in the beginning, right? But it kind of leads them to this like, uh, you know, deeper, deeper, uh, like, I guess, hole, right? Mm-hmm. And it goes so far that one of them, you know, you know, doesn't make it out. Yeah. Um, and the ending is just like, all right. I mean, you're welcome to disagree with me on this, but the ending is just like. Uh, you know, suddenly he uh, his wife texts him back and he just feels happy. And it's like, it's hard for me to understand, like, what the film is arguing and what the film is trying to say. And I feel like there's so much depth to that story of, like, um, just the effect of alcohol on these people. Um, and the kind of, and, like, what they're looking for. Like, what they're looking to get out of their, like, binge drinking um, that they can't get into their normal lives. That it doesn't... I don't see any of that in the ending. And, and I mean, yeah, I like to see Bad's dancing. It's kind of <laughs> clever that they, they, they brought up this dance school thing the, the whole time. But yeah, I don't know. It just it feels kind of weak to me. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> to me, um, the ending, I think, reflects how nuanced like the entire film is about um, the issue of alcoholism. Because, um, well, the... The, the the times in which like alcohol is portrayed as like very positive in this movie are um and these like little character moments i think um in which uh they're not so much worried about like what hap- what's happening tomorrow um or you know what what happened like the previous day they're just kind of like having a good time in the moment and i think that the ending really reflects that kind of feeling of um feeling great in the moment because um the movie uh uh, ends on a still of, of Mad Mickelson like jumping in the water, right? And so yeah. he's uh, like he's having a great time right now, but he's like a, a, he's a, he's about to like get pretty wet. Probably not gonna have like a great time, um, being soaking wet and also mm-hmm. drunk. Do you th- and do you think it's do you think it's far fetched to connect? Oh, you just continue. And um, we also don't exactly know like what his wife ends up texting him because. So I think that we we get that like there might be some kind of reconciliation um, with the texting earlier, but during the da- the dancing sequence, um, he like sits down on a bench and then you hear him like getting a text tone, and I think that you see him like um, bringing like the phone up to his eyes, but you don't actually see like what she texted him. So I mean, for all for all what we for all what we know, like it could be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, and well, um, would you think that he would? Huh? I would say, wouldn't you think that the the whole like catalyst for him dancing was just his wife te- texting that she wants to like be with him again? Not necessarily. Like I think I think that um, he would have done, he would have done it on either way because he wanted to be in the moment. So um, really, yeah, I think in that scene, huh. um, he's putting away all of like his his problems um, and just focusing on the thrill of that specific moment because um if he was i think more concerned with what was happening with his wife then i think there would be like more focus on like what they were texting like near the end um or or what that like final text was um but the fact that like we're 
were kind of like shown that like it doesn't really matter i think suggests that um he's more focused on on like that moment of joy and i think that says a lot about um about like human beings and, and like life in general um and how um we have like these like bursts of of like joy in these specific moments and like we need to like really cherish that and i think a lot of people like easily easily forget those like really like great bursts of joy because human beings like typically focus on the negatives of life more than the positives i don't know man. <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i just <laughs> i mean I, I i didn't consider this idea of just like this is completely uh this kind of exists almost like in isolation from like all the events of the film yeah and he's just like happy just to be happy I don't know. I don't know if... I, I mean, and I this is kind I of only something that's possible <laughs> in, in a way like with alcohol because, um, well, alcohol obviously like, dulls the senses. It makes you like less less rational. And um, when you're less rational, you have um, this possibility of like letting loose and enjoying the moment more so than like... Um, than you can otherwise. But he really because, starts then, like, drinking when he starts dancing, right? Um, I right. no, 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 they, they, they started, they actually started drinking before at the restaurant. Um, yeah, but it was like a little bit, it was a little bit, but it was really like, you know, downing that bottle. <laughs> right. But I don't think he would have like instantly gotten drunk it. after downing that one bottle, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know, Duran. This is a little bit, this is a little bit too much. <laughs> I don't know. Fair enough. I, know, I, I think, I don't know. For me, but the... I, I appreciate, no, I, 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 I think, I think I appreciate your interpretation of it. I think okay. that's a, it's a, I'll think about it, but I don't sure. know, I think it's a bit too much for me to be being honest. <laughs> yeah, alright, I'm going to quickly, I'll quickly run through the films I've seen. Yeah, go ahead. Um, of course, I went through the Kurosawa films, um, uh, I won't mention them again. I watched Black Girl uh, yesterday. Oh, fantastic. I think an hour of free time. Nice. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. If people don't know Black Girl, it's probably like one of the biggest, like, um, examples of like art, uh, African art house, probably the biggest example of like African art house. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives you a really interesting view of like colonialism. I, I took it as a way of showing how colonialism destroys like um, identity because this uh, um, it follows um, it follows a second uh, Senegal- uh, uh, Senegalese woman uh, kind of working as a maid in France and not even like just the culture, the whole world around her becomes completely abstracted because it mm-hmm. views her as a kind of uh, lesser person. Um, and on that subject, that's a yeah, great really interpretation. Yeah. Um, on that subject, um, do you know the original French title of the movie? Yeah, La Noir de. Yeah, um, and I think like that kind of like reflects what what you were saying because um, and like this is one of those things of like the title being lost in translation because the original French title is amazing because it's um, the, the rough translation is like um, the black girl from and then ellipses, um, and so that's like suggesting. Yeah. So not only not only from but also of it's like right it's, it's yeah it's 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 suggesting that there's like an ambiguous identity to her but right, the yeah. identity just like doesn't exist almost in the film yeah and it, like it uh, it sucks that like i mean you can't really translate that into english and like it sucks that um like the the translation is just black girl because it, it, it just like i don't yeah. know it loses like the how excellent the title is yeah oh yeah definitely um yeah the french language also has like um uh, in in the film itself, they also delineate between like you know like it's weird that um so like noir is just black, but you say like la noir is like the black woman. It's almost like, but it's also saying to like it's almost like translates to the black. Almost like if you take a literal translation, right? Yeah. Um, and 
and this is kind of like so common. I mean, they also refer to whites this way in the film. Um, mm-hmm. So this is kind of maybe, I'm not sure to what extent this is like a good reading of the film, but it's certainly in the French language. They talk about them being blacks and whites. And it's like, usually don't do that in English. Um, at least you don't want to be like really reductive. Or like, yeah, at least not anymore. I think this was like down. probably more of a thing like um, like in the mid-century. I think they, they did a lot in America. Perhaps, yeah. Um, at least when, in my translation, it wasn't. It wasn't. It didn't specifically talk to us, blacks and whites. But mm. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's again. You 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 get this a lot with a lot of films. Um, also, we're talking about Iran. I mean, the the the, the translation of characters chaos, but we don't. Uh, um, you literally wouldn't know that if you were just like watching this in an English title. Um, yeah, it's like yeah. it's like it, chaos. It's, like, it's like, um, turmoil. It can be like a lot of different words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, black girl's great. Um, don't have to hear that from me. Yeah. Um, I watched Bo Burnham's Inside. Uh, mm-hmm. I know you really hate that one. I that, I I, <laughs> I thought it was great. Despise it. <laughs> absolutely despise that. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> That's fine. That can that can be. Um, yeah, I, I just. My I'll, I'll just. I'll just. Yeah, I'll just. I'll just mention something quickly. I just thought it was really interesting. Like. In a way, I didn't find this special so funny. And there was actually parts of it that I found tedious, especially in the beginning. There was like a white Instagram girl part, and I'm just like, oh, I just don't care, dude. I don't care. But, <laughs> but for yeah. the most of this, for the most of for most of this movie, um, it's really just like it's interesting to me how it like builds up and this the weight of these kind of like lonely, lonely months kind of builds on his um, on on how his like his special. Um, he also like intercuts scenes of him like creating the special and reflecting on the special and you're really getting almost like a dip, uh, a display of like this kind of just like the the emotional turmoil you get from just like sitting in a room alone and kind of the world around you becomes more and more abstract and i think this is really reflected in this film um i think parts some parts of it are really funny though um there's a scene where he's like thinking he, he's basically mimicking like a youtuber and he's sitting in front and like thanking subscribers and he just picks up a knife and he just holds it and he just keeps thanking it. And you're just like wondering like what he's going to do with the knife. But it's almost like this kind of like, <laughs> it's a little bit absurd just that he's holding a knife. It's just like, it, 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 it's, it, 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 he's, Bo Burnham has done this a lot in a lot of his other specials of kind of like creating this almost like a deceptive relationship with the audience. And I think some of the best, uh, the best parts of this um, have that. So it's like in that whole time, you're like not sure what he's going to do. Um, another, probably the best, I think, um, skate in that one was one where he's like, uh, uh, there's, it's like a Rocky montage. I don't know if you remember this one, but uh, there was, um, and he's, he's <laughs> I'm sure you just want to forget the whole film, but <laughs> honestly, <laughs> <laughs> there, he, he has like, a, there, he does like a Rocky montage and he talks about like all the cringy, like offensive shit that he did in the past. And he oh does God! This, I I, I, I could not stand that part. I was I was I wanted <laughs> I it, to die. Just like because I, in a way, I do not oh, care really? about your white guilt, <laughs> Bo Burnham. Shut the fuck up, man. No, but 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 but, but I think the point of that because at the very end of it, he he puts himself at a cross, you know. So he wants mm-hmm. to be almost like crucified for it. Like he wants to have like meaning for his like white guilt almost. Yeah. So it's almost like a commentary on the like white guilt. Because he's like aware of that, and that's what's what's really interesting about Bo Burnham, at least in my opinion, mm-hmm. is that he he kind of presents these things, and he always has like a very deceptive relationship with the audience, and he has this kind of it's it's almost like maybe a little bit absurd, maybe a little bit you know satirical, but 
and, and try and like figure that out and like um, is what makes them really interesting. I think that one's I don't know. I think that one's interesting. I know you don't agree, with me, but <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, we're we're free to disagree. <laughs> All right. Um, I watched um, uh, Andre Rublev. Nice. Yes. <laughs> finally, masterpiece. Finally watched that. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of I decided to watch because your um, your other friend, I think Ryan, who yeah. I also followed, gave like two and a half stars, and I was like, <laughs> I have to have I have to have an opinion on this movie. Yeah, I still I still need to talk um, to him about I mean, that movie. I'm always his opinion. Yeah, I mean, I get why somebody who um, maybe isn't so from. Isn't so maybe not used to specifically Tarkovsky, but these kind of like long-winded like films that aren't so focused on plot or like kind of more um, disjointed in their narrative uh, might not be like super accessible for some people. Um, yeah, I understand like parts of Andrei Rublev might be a little bit like hard to connect with. I think I just think I that mean, like overall, it's it's very like difficult to like have a grasp of what the movie is trying to say, like especially on the first watch. Yeah, like, um, I, I I really yeah, liked it my first yeah. watch, but like. It really wasn't until like my second that I really could make anything out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I definitely don't feel comfortable commenting on like anything specific in that film. Um, but I mean, yeah, that segment with Boris, um, who uh, um, Boris the character, in the film, <laughs> um, who who like like lies his way into like in this like leadership position and then tries to like. Um, you know, craft this bell, almost like mm-hmm. randomly saying like instructions. You know, yeah, um, with this like really intense fervor, right? Like he's just like, like you can't do that. It's like, and like this whole time you kind, of, it's at the end it's revealed that he like he had no idea what he was doing, but you kind of know what's going on that this is like he's obviously like stretching, like this is kind of bullshit, like isn't that? Um, and yeah. watching that kind of amount and almost like pile over him until he's sitting there. And like you hear the Italian generals almost like dismissing the the work of the peasants and talking about how they're probably going to kill him if he doesn't work, and he's just sitting there watching, yeah. just hoping for the bell to ring. It was such an intense scene, mm-hmm. um, and then he cries like Andre Rublev's. Uh, like, I mean, yeah, it's it's that. I mean, that's like it's just so good. I, 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 I really, it's it's both, it's hard. Both times I've seen that yeah. movie, I cried at that scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, that causes Andre Rulop to break his, like, vow of silence. Yeah, it's an interesting film because, like, um, it's, it's hard also maybe for me to connect and stuff like this because, like, uh, Tarkovsky, of course, is a very, very religious guy, um, or at least very, like, spiritual guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, this film has, like, almost, like, a, um, intrinsic, like, belief in God and there's, like, an, uh, there's kind of a, you know, God is kind of an omniscient being in this, and it's always like reflecting on like how can all this happen when God is looking up there, and maybe that's not like doesn't totally fit with my worldview, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's like very interesting. Um, yeah, I mean the, the like the, the landscapes always are like I, I wrote in my review that the landscapes are always like feel like completely barren, just completely destroyed mm-hmm. by like this like just you know ages of conflict that were happening here that, that we're almost like empty, you know. Um, yeah, you know, there's that great scene of the uh, the the new the new the the king or the the prince at the time, um, like walking after like he just destroyed like this whole the, um, his new like uh, his new palace essentially just like wondering what it's for. Um, yeah, but yeah, there's this, yeah a lot of de- like you said a lot of depth of this film like maybe w- way too possible for me to like comment on everything on a first watch, but certainly like, yeah, 
that that weight is is very present and i think you'll you'll like understand that if you watch the film yeah i mean i feel i feel like if you watch this movie like 30 times there's still gonna be stuff that you're gonna find it's just endlessly yeah. endlessly rich um for me that um what i what i connected to the most in, in, in this film is um the connection between um being an artist and uh and like spirituality so um kind of that it's this the spiritual idea that like art has some kind of like a meaning um and, and so like yeah. the role of a like a religious figure and an artist i think is is very much like similar and in this case andre rubliov is both right he's like both a monk and also a um icon painter um and like at the end yeah. of the movie we have this uh beautiful montage um where like, the film switched to color and we get like um all of these uh images of his paintings or assumingly his paintings actually interestingly enough um mm-hmm. something i learned was that there's only one painting that's uh, 100% known to have been painted by him but there's several other ones that are like rumored or thought to maybe have been um and interestingly mm-hmm. enough like there isn't really much known about Andrew Rublev as a person um because like there wasn't really any like records of him or there wasn't like many records of him um and so most of this film is uh the creation of Tarkovsky um so like yeah i guess though i guess i'd comment on like his uh his identity not as a public figure but rather as an artist yeah um because that's all that the film is really reflecting on is like um like there's like there's moments around the film is like well it's like whether he's painting for um you know the people or he's painting for for god like the beauty of god almost um, yeah and so that that kind of that kind of like argument will will have someone will only like occur with someone who's only like whose only like identity is that of like their artwork yeah and i'm sure that like tarkovsky saw a lot of himself in um in andre rubliov the real character the real person and also the character that he created mm. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, great film. Um, I watched uh, The Watermelon Woman. I don't know if you've seen mm. that one yet. I really want to. It's been uh, on my list for a while. How was that? Yeah, The Watermelon Woman. Yeah, I mean, this film is like, you look at the reviews, a lot of like, the accolades of this. It's like, oh, this is so important. Big, like, big central piece of like this new LGBT, uh, LGBT cinema. And yeah, I mean, if you want to watch as a film historian, but um, uh, you'll get that context of it. Um, but yeah, watching someone who, you know, not, is not, you know, a uh, black lesbian living in New York. Um, and I mean, I still found it really interesting. Um, I think the most interesting part about it is, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of it is, it, it presents like a lot of ideas about like, uh, about like, it's, it's a film that's primarily concerned with identity. And of course, you know, black lesbian in New York is someone who's like probably always like confronted with their identity. So it's something mm-hmm. they're always thinking about. Um, and, and, and there's many ways where she connects to like real life scenarios that somehow like, uh, play into her identity. Um, you know, um, one thing that's interesting about this movie is there's no, like, I mean, there's no, like a lot of, a lot of movies that, you know, depict black people and, you know, gay people, especially this, this time, um, almost like, uh, like fetishize their, like, like violence, almost like, uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if there's the best way to describe that. Um, no, there there is like a, like, like a commodification of like black trauma. Yeah, yeah, that's that sounds <laughs> good. That sounds like what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, but this film doesn't have any of that, um, and it's it's very like strictly uh, this kind of um, um, 
yeah, I mean, it's clear that this is coming from a voice who um, like lives these kind of, uh, um, you know, these, these things. And so there's there's that that layer of the film to it. <clears throat> um, but yeah, the, the thing about this film is that it presents like a lot of ideas about like what it means to be you know a black lesbian. But it doesn't give you like a, a any all of its ideas. It always also like presents contradictions too. Um, you know, one of them is like whether you should date within your own race, um, and that might seem like kind of um, silly. But like within the context of the film, they they see like um, the, she she dates like a white woman who's clearly this like very cosmopolitan, very like um, almost like exists like outside of like any 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 anything she is, um, and. This this idea is almost like it's it, it, on some sense it's like it's like okay and in some sense there's like some problems with it um, and it's yeah. it, it, the film presents it as like an ongoing discussion. There's no like there's no like definite like answer of what it wants to, but it wants to like it wants to present all its ideas. And so I think the point of that is just to like um, like as I said earlier about you know not not the fetish, the com- uh, the commodification of uh, you know trauma um, is that you're 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 creating like an identity for yourself within like this this broader cinematic space um and mm-hmm. during the course of the film the main plot of the film is that try to make a documentary on a um, another black lesbian actress and um a lot of the kind of you know and this this actress doesn't exist in real life but within the film a lot of the, the turmoils that she she experiences is, is like reflective of like um the like hopes and aspirations and the 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 um like the the identity crisis of, of that 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 the main character has um and so you're kind of yeah again it's 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 i i i wrote it as validation of yourself in a cinematic space and i think that that's really what's what's really beautiful about it and even me someone like me who's like completely outside of this whole context um can really appreciate this um so yeah i think it's a really good film mm. uh i'll definitely yeah, check it out recommended yeah, I mean, it's of course one of those like important films that a lot of people recommend. Yeah, um, and even if you don't like it, at least you'll get like a perspective on like some of these issues, um, which is always great, you know, to get <laughs> to get something out of a film like that. Um, I'm just mentioning that because I was reading through some of the reviews, and a lot of people are a little bit lukewarm on it, which makes sense. Mm. But uh, but yeah, um, and I'll mention one last film just because I really loved it. Uh, a movie called Mister Thank You. Um, I've heard about uh, which made it. <laughs> Yeah, so I kind of the reason I know about this movie is because I was going through like um, like lists of greatest Japanese films specifically made by the Japanese, and so this is directed by a guy named uh, Hiroshi Shimizu, um, who doesn't exist in the West in like any real capacity. There's no like, um, you know, he doesn't have any kind of like uh, um, notoriety, I guess here, um, mm-hmm. but he's really well known in Japan, and um, he has like a number a, a number of films kind of considered to be the greatest of. So I watched this movie called Mr. Thank You, which is a very simple film. Um, it's, it's largely about a bus driver. Um, the whole concept is that the bus driver, um, every time he passes someone, he says thank you. He waves and says thank you. Um, and that's the premise of the film, essentially. Like, you're, you're, uh, you're on this bus while it goes from, like, one, one end to um, another. Um, and so it seems, like, really sweet, but um, it's, it's in the context of, like, the, the uh, like a Depression-era Japan. This is filmed in 1936, so... Mm. Um, and on this bus is this like uh, is this young girl who is being sold off to be a prostitute, um, in order to pay for her for her parents' like livelihood essentially, and I guess for her livelihood too. Um, and the, the and you know as soon as they get to the end of this bus bus road, 
uh, this kind of the this this uh, the end of this what's it, bus route, um, you know, that'll that'll be realized, right? And so it's kind of like it's a little bit foreboding about it, um, or at least seemingly foreboding about it, because the film is actually like really funny. It's really positive. It's really optimistic in a way, um, and it's a it's a very like yeah, I mean, it's a really refreshing like. Um, perspective on this like very uh like very dark time japanese history but at the same time it's like a i mean it's a really positive uh outlook on uh, this really dark time in japanese history but at the same time it's also very like realistic about these problems hmm. and doesn't like sugarcoat anything um it's largely like um most of the people on the bus kind of come and go and so you get this like really like a rich collection rich array of stories um and rich array of characters that you get familiar with um but ultimately they're coming and going they're like really random so that it's also like an interesting aspect of it um, that you know that as soon as these people get on, you get this like small window of opportunity to get to know them, and then they get off, and they're like suddenly they become part of the kind of the the, the existentially vast environment around you. Um, mm. And of course, you you see a lot of people in this film. I think it's a really beautiful film. I mean, I gave it five stars. So this is highly recommended for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's cool. I'll definitely try to check it uh, out. I guess I'd, so have you seen anything by um, this director besides this one? No, no. I, this is the first film I saw by him. Um, I've been aware of him earlier just because I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd researched a little bit about Japanese uh, film history before, um, mm. but I only got around to watching him now. Um, it's nice that this movie's only like 78 minutes long, so you can fit it in like an evening. Um, Perfect. But yeah, it's a really beautiful film. Um, I, this is kind of like a, a very like, you know, uh, fun for everyone. It's not like a uh, a very accessible film, I'd say. So hmm. uh, um, maybe in some ways challenging, but um, I, th- I, th- I think uh, anyone would enjoy it. That's cool. I'll definitely check yeah. it out. I mean, like Japanese cinema is like um, one that I've really been trying to get into more recently. Like it's it's a it's like a pretty big blind spot for me. I've kind of like started with um, yeah some of like the Japanese new wave guys, um, which which have been like really really cool. But um, I'm like basically yeah. not familiar with anything like before kurosawa or like mizuguchi really so um i'll definitely take this out mm. yeah there there are you know there isn't like a rich history of japanese film uh, before them but yeah, yeah there's certainly some great some great picks of course ozu yeah, sure. also had some ozu too, yeah. dude i need to i need to like do a deep dive into ozu soon i i feel like so embarrassed to yeah. have only seen tokyo story once like three years ago oh, and yeah. like that's it so and, and yeah. Yeah, I, do that same. I would recommend i actually actually tokyo story isn't even my favorite there, it, tokyo story is actually part of a trilogy oh really um, i don't know that i don't remember this trilogy is called yeah it's kind of like one of these unofficial kind of trilogies that are all just like thematically connected they're not like gotcha um but yeah a lot of what you're saying it's probably well i guess it's not so similar to the one car one because they are connected but um it is, it is still kind anyway, of anyway yeah the trilogy is yeah, it's 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 it goes uh, early summer, um, Tokyo Story and late. Sp- oh no, actually no, late spring, early summer, Tokyo Story. So Tokyo Story is the last one, and okay. actually late spring and early summer are my two favorite personal uh, Ozu films. Um, hmm. I think they're incredible. Uh, yeah, um, early summer is probably like the biggest, the best like uh, Koreanic companion piece. Um, hmm. uh, it's it's yeah, it's this kind of like. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of a lot of Oza films are looking at like this um, kind of cultural shift that's happening in Japan um, that I talked a little bit about a little bit about earlier. Um, and early summer is definitely like in kind of it, it, it's looking at, at a family kind of in the midst of it, um, 
uh, a lot of Ozu films, of course, look at like uh, these kind of like cultural shifts. Um, but yeah, yeah, early some is incredible. Uh, Late Spring is really great. Late Spring reminds Late Spring is specifically about like a a father daughter a father daughter relationship, which mm. I actually don't like get a lot <laughs> in cinema. Um, yeah, I guess that's true. It's the other example is in, yeah the other. Yeah, the other example is the Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. It's also mm-hmm. a father-daughter relationship. Great movie. Um, but yeah, Late Spring is beautiful. Um, yeah, it's about it's about um, it's about the daughter played by Satsuko Haro, who's you know the muse of Ozu, mm-hmm. um, trying to uh, r- rather n- being unsure of whether she, she should marry because she's worried that she, she'll abandon her father. Um, and the way that movie plays out, I mean, yeah, it, it's really something. Um, so yeah, strongly recommend that one. And of course, all the other films. I mean, yeah, uh, Autumn Afternoon, Good Morning, um, uh, Only Son is uh, one of the is um, a film he did before the the World War Two, which I think is excellent as well. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I also have a few gaps in his filmography, so I have to go eventually <laughs> check that out. Yeah, my interest has kind of been renewed yeah. um, with him more recently because uh, I've been reading. Um... Paul Schrader's transcendental style in film, um, in which he covers uh, yeah. the he, he so he he develops like this theory of transcendental style, and he covers um, films by Ozu, Brisson, and Dreyer, um, and uh, definitely like within yeah, that, familiar with this, <laughs> yeah, within that context, I'm really uh, curious to to like see his films and see like how they how they reflect his theory, but. Also, yeah, yeah, he is I, I think, an extremely important filmmaker. Yeah. So there's that too. <laughs> yeah, I think I think yeah, I I think I first heard about. I, I've never read it. I've only read like excerpts of it or like summaries mm-hmm. of this transcendental sound film. But I remember at the first reading about it when I first discovered like Corrieta, and that really shaped my like view of like um, how narratives like communicate with us. Because um, mm. uh, the whole point of that, the whole idea of the transcendental is that it doesn't. Um, um, I mean, there's more to it, but the idea is that you're you're transcending like some, um, you know, you have some like narrative, some discontinuity, uh, discontinuity. I think in in the world, I think that's the word he used. Um, and instead of like fixing that, you're kind of transcending it and trying to like find almost like finding peace with it, right? Right. Um, yeah. And it was always like, a really fascinating way to to look at films. Um, yeah, that was a, that was kind of yeah. It's definitely a, a book to look into. Uh, definitely check it out. I actually so um. I, I read the the Brisson chapter a while ago, but um, I haven't like gone through the entire book. Um, yeah, definitely check it out. It's 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 really interesting stuff. Um, he actually did a revised version a couple of years ago. Um, he has like a new introduction um, where he kind of like talks about like slow cinema, um, and how like that is what transcendental style kind of is like nowadays. Um, and of course, like slow cinema kind of like became like popularized like after like Tarkovsky. It's, it's like more of like a recent phenomenon. Yeah, I would imagine because he he wrote that in, he wrote that in like 1970. So I would imagine yeah. that uh, Tarkovsky would be a new addition to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. All right. Um, All right. Anything else? Anything else you want to mention? No, I think We've that's it. Here for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Boris, thank you so much for joining me again and choosing this incredible film. And thank you for your recommendations. No problem. Um, you're wrong about Bowen Burnham's yeah, Inside. It's a terrible movie. But besides that. Oh, and another oh. round. You're wrong about another round. But besides that, besides that, I respect your um, opinions <laughs> on these things. All right. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I also respect your opinion, you know, even if you're wrong sometimes. You know? 
I gotcha. Well, I actually, you know, on Letterbox, I I follow a lot of people who I disagree with a lot. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, what's her name? Um, wait, let me find her. You know, you probably know this one. Uh, Sally Jane Black. Do you know oh, her? Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh God. I disagree with her. I disagree with her all the time. There's like one review where she where um, it's like a Red Dawn review, the new Red Dawn film, hmm. where uh, America's invaded by North Korea, and she's like. Um, like this is the capitalist lie. North Korea is like a, is the ultimate like. <laughs> yeah, no, she's freedom. she's like a straight up tanky. Like That's oh really... geez. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She literally is a tanking. Yeah. yeah, but I still like find her. Like I find some of her perspectives really fascinating. I follow like a lot of people I disagree with. Yeah, and now I can add Duran to that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No, I mean like um, it's it's only interesting to talk about movies if you disagree with them, right? I mean you gotta if you're just like um, uh blowing smoke up each other's asses you know it's not that useful but i mean um, that could be fun that could be fun too oh it's really fun (laughs) and um it feels really good for for a little bit but um you need to like spice it up a little bit yeah i guess we could agree on that one i guess we can agree on that one (laughs) boris thanks so much for coming on hopefully i'll be back soon yeah no problem yeah all right goodbye